0: So our next witness is Elizabeth Galvin. And Elizabeth, um, I'll ask you to start by stating your full name and spelling your first and last name for the record.
1: My name's Elizabeth Galvin, and it's E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H, and Galvin is G-A-L-V-I-N.
0: And I'll also ask you uh, to move the microphone a little closer because you have a soft voice. (coughs) And (laughs) I'll ask uh, if you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today. I will. Now, you're here um, to share actually a a very sad story about three different um, young ladies. And so can you share with the commissioners um, what, what I'm referring to?
1: My daughter Danielle died by suicide in January 2022, a day after her 20th birthday. The week before that, another second year student at the University of Guelph died by suicide. They didn't know each other. At the time, the University of Guelph administration had closed their campus to in-person learning, campus activities, even though the university had mandated students be fully vaccinated before starting school that year, their decision followed Doug Ford's decision. So
0: I, I'm going to just ask you not not to read and.
1: Sorry. And do, do, I
0: had you were going to tell us about three young three young people. Yep,
1: yeah. that same week, a 20-year-old um, young woman in Mississauga named Sur- Suri. She also died by suicide, alone in her apartment. Because at the time, we, uh, our province was locked down again for, uh, Doug Ford's administration said, two weeks, and then maybe three weeks, maybe longer. So that was the um, atmosphere when these three young women died by suicide.
0: Now- Um, Just so that the audience and the commissioners understand, these three young women basically would have been of the same cohort graduating from high school at the same time?
1: Yes, so in March 2020, when it all started, these girls were all um, in their last year of high school. Um, Now Grace, who was in second year university uh, at the same time that my daughter was, she was from the US, but Surrey um, was from Ontario, from Mississauga, and um, so they were, um, the high schools, if you remember back to March 2020, all the schools were closed, um, just slammed shut one day. And the grade 12, so these grade 12s um, finished, um, the last three and a half months of their school year um, learning virtually, but after a couple of months, they had almost no instruction. Um, because and, and so, what the teachers did was they used their marks to date up up to March two thousand and twenty to figure out their final marks. These were the kids that were preparing to go to post secondary school in the fall. So. Their last year of high school, they had no prom, no graduation, no grade 12, end of year, end of high school uh, trip, nothing. There was nothing for these kids. They had an online graduation. So we tried to make it as fun as possible, but.
0: How how did your daughter respond to it? Because I just, I know that. Like, I had a daughter, and she was so excited about the high school graduation and planning parties with her friends and the dress and the whole thing. How did uh, Danielle respond to basically losing out on something that most young ladies look forward to for years?
1: Well, um, she was sad about it. It was isolating. We were all very isolated at the time, if you remember. And um, so we just had a family... um, you know, event, we watched it on. It was a virtual graduation. The school did uh, a video and they, and they streamed it and we watched that. Um, but she was thinking ahead to the fall and we all thought that by September things would be back to normal, so we just tried to concentrate on looking ahead. Um, so in,
0: in March, when they're, they're closing down the high schools, Danielle had to be making a decision right around then about the following year, didn't she?
1: Yeah, I think February 1st is the deadline to apply for post-secondary. Going into the summer, though, um, there were not a lot of jobs for these kids because so many businesses were shut down, as um, Catherine talked about. She was actually looking forward to working at um, Ford, where her uh, late father had worked for 20-something years and that would have helped her to save money for post-secondary, but they weren't hiring students that year, so she had two minimum-wage jobs, but one of them um, was at a dry cleaners, and it closed down. So she, could only, she only had a one minimum-wage job, but June 1st is an important date.
0: That's when she had to make a decision.
1: So June 1st is the deadline for grade 12s, was that year, um, for the grade 12s to accept offers from universities. So... At that time, the universities had um, uh, announced their intentions for September, what it was going to look like, whether it would be virtual learning or in-person learning, and more importantly, whether their residences would be open. So residence is such an important um, part of going to a way to school, to spread your wings and meet other people and, you know, mature. So McMaster announced they wouldn't open their residences. Queens announced that they would open their residences, but only to single rooms. So those first-year kids knew that they may or may not get a room at Queens. Western University and Guelph University um, announced that they would open their residences fully. So on June 1st, by midnight, we had to make a decision. Danielle and her sister and I sat there going back and forth. Uh, Danielle's older sister was going into fourth year at Western. So Danielle couldn't decide between Western and Guelph. But a really important part of that decision was residence. And um, she decided on Guelph. So that was that. Two days later, Guelph University came back and said, "Nope, we're not opening our residences. So what happens when you accept an offer through the central application center is all the other offers are rescinded. So, so um, I, uh, uh, so they, so what these kids were accepting and buying—they were buying an education. They weren't going to get the product that they thought they were going to get, and it was two days after that de- that very important deadline. So I started. I called the university. I called my MPP. I called the minister of colleges and universities. I'm like, can they do this? Is when I talked to somebody at the University of Guelph, they told me that the Wellington-Dufferin-Guelph Health Unit advised them not to open their residences, so they didn't. I don't know why the the, the Wellington-Dufferin-Guelph Health Unit was running Guelph University, but. Apparently, that was it. So, And when, the min, Minister of Colleges and Universities went to my MPP, Effie Trantafilopoulos, and she um, talked to the Minister on my behalf, Raymond Romano, and we were told... I'm,
0: I'm going to ask you not to read, please. Sorry.
1: Um, that, they, that the Ministry does not usually interfere with the operations of colleges and universities. So, no I, standard.
0: So... Basically, it was a bait and switch for Danielle. So she chose Guelph because they were representing that the residences would be open and she could have that experience. She chooses, as soon as you choose, that's it. You're pulled out of the system. She couldn't choose to go to Western after that. And then two days later, after her choice, they basically say they're closing the residence. Now, <clears throat> you fought and fought and fought and got her into residence, but it, it wasn't normal residence, was it?
1: I got a group of parents together, and we um, you know lobbied the university and uh, got a, a meeting with one of the vice provosts, lovely woman and um, uh, uh, some of the some of the kids in that group of families that we were talking with each other, um, some of them just said they're not going to go to. First year. They're going to postpone it a year. Some uh, students uh, tried to get into other schools. Some of them were successful, right. some of them weren't.
0: Liz, it's just I'm looking at the clock and we have six minutes. So I want you to focus okay. on Danielle's experience when she went.
1: Okay, so in September, September 2020. 2020, first year university was like this no frosh week, no clubs or sports, no, um, uh, no in person classes, it was virtual, no varsity sports but no discount on any of the fees. They paid their full fees to go. Residence itself, they had two kids in, she was in Lenox Addington, two kids at this end of the hall, two kids way at the other end of the hall. It was like the Shining Hotel, long, dimly lit hallway with closed, locked, unmarked doors, only two kids to a bathroom. The cafeteria and theirs were closed in in that residence was closed. But education delivery was even worse. Four out of five of my daughter's professors did not deliver a virtual lecture. They basically sent them emails, um, told them what to read, told them what book to buy and read. And you know, the test is on Thursday. Good luck. Uh, so they were she was forced to do a lot of self learning. No, no, no discount on tuition. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. By comparison, Western University, where my other daughter was going, that school mandated that their professors provide a virtual lecture to their students. All the profs had to do that, and they did. So, and it was much better. And their residences were fully functional, and everybody was fine.
0: Liz, what happened in November 2020?
1: In November 2020, while Danielle was living in this bleak residence, just it was so... just. Tensville, Um, she attempted suicide. She left a a message to a friend who found her, anyways, was rushed to Guelph Hospital. I get a call, my other daughter and I, um, because she was learning virtually as well, so she was at home, we went running up there and the hospital wouldn't let me in because of COVID. They wouldn't let me in. My 18-year-old daughter is in a life or death situation And they wouldn't let me in and they would barely talk to me they couldn't talk to me and tell me what was going on because she was 18. so i didn't know what to do we stood in that parking lot at three in the morning just anyways eventually we went home but nobody would talk to me about and tell me what to do and give me some guidance so they released her in less than 72 hours i've since obtained the file from the hospital every Every time they could check it off, it said "danger to herself, danger to herself, danger to herself." Yet they released her. I just—I don't know why. I've—I've had—I've I've, I've made calls into them. I'm, I'm not finished talking to them yet, but they could have put her into an inpatient program called Homewood, and they didn't. So. Christmas comes. She comes home. She decides she's going to move out of that residence. She's going to move to another residence. At the time, Guelph was slowly bringing kids into the residences one by one, but there was only a few hundred students on on campus. It wasn't a lot.
0: And and Liz, can can I get you to stop looking at your notes? I I know you're nervous, but um,
1: so she moved into East Residence, which are townhouses that can house four kids. But it was just her and one other um, student in this residence at the time. um, So the campus is still really quiet and sort of dead. And um, the campus police were given um, the authority to give out tickets to students who were out of line. At the time, there were various um, rules, if you remember. All the different regions had different rules of gatherings. You could have five, you could have 10, you could be inside, you could be outside. So it was very confusing. She turned 19 in January and celebrated her 19th birthday with one other kid. So two weeks later, one of the rules changed. It did in our area, we could have five people. So they had a. Uh, get-together, a party, as people do, um, with five students. The campus police gave them all COVID fines of $880 each. Very stressful. They didn't know how they were going to pay this, so that that was very, very stressful. Um, uh, First year ends. They come home for the summer. She comes home for the summer. Uh, Same situation, same job situation. So many things were closed. She couldn't get Um, a very good job. She's working, you know, a minimum wage job again. And and then, oh, and then the kids have to look for someone to room with in second year. So the difficulty was, you know, 40, over 4,000 kids are learning virtually. So it's hard to meet other people. So most of these kids just had to answer an online ad, roll the dice and move in with somebody in September. her friend that she was supposed to move in with um, hated University of Guelph so much um, that she quit and transferred to Windsor and where she could live at home because it was just so depressing there. And all the while, the media is bombarding us all with this, it, it, all these cases, everyone's sick uh, and, and, you know, just causing all this fear and stress and anxiety and it just, it did not help her mental health or the other two girls. So um um so september second year yes so
0: so September what happens there so she moves in with somebody
1: she, so in second um, year she moves into a house with a um, so a family friend whose um son was off campus um he needed a room he he moves in there and then two more people move in who are strangers um so not ideal um and then um they uh, they did uh, uh, in person classes resumed sports resumed um, varsity sports started up again but she wasn't the same it her the the last year and a half had taken such a toll on her mental health um, that uh, looking back now I can see it did on me too I mean I took a, a leave of absence from work I, just from stress and. I was trying to find ways to help her because um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't get any guidance from these health professionals. And so, but I can see now looking back that she'd given up at that point. So September, um, she's um, in school and, and classes are, are on, but we were always under the threat of it might close down again. It might close down if the numbers go up. Blah. So um in december uh we was we we got vaccinated we're fully vaccinated and in so christmas was spent not with family because i caught omicron so but my two daughters living in the same house didn't catch it and we were all fully vaccinated so I, i don't know that's when i caught it so we didn't see our family again that was the third year in a row we didn't have christmas with our family
0: Can I I just stop you just so people understand? So Danielle came home for Christmas to be Mm -hmm. with with the family, but because you had COVID, you guys couldn't spend Christmas with the family.
1: Yeah. I mean, the media was, um, the numbers were ramping up and Omicron and uh, don't be around people. And so to be safe, we didn't go and get together with our family.
0: And were you guys able to be with family the year before at Christmas? No. So this is the second year in a row.
1: It was actually the third year, but that's because one of my um, brothers-in-law was uh, not well. And and that's when the rumors of COVID were starting in December 2019.
0: So what happened in January then of 2022?
1: So January, she... Oh, January. The government locked us down again. And the University of Guelph followed suit. Right away. Even though these kids were all fully vaccinated, healthy, young people, they shut it down again. And I wrote to everyone. I wrote to the Minister of Health. I wrote to the university. I wrote to my MPP. I wrote to um, many people. I wrote to the Provost, Charlotte Yates. I'm just going to
0: stop you about that and tell us about... Like just focus on Danielle, not the what what you did for the university, and and I'm sorry it's partly because we're out of time, but I also want you to um, focus on the story. So in January, basically things are shut down again, and you're telling us, but at the University of Guelph, you had to be fully vaccinated.
1: Yep, and, you had to be fully uh, vaccinated to go to school that year, 2021, 20, 22. Um, But they closed the campus down. Anyway, and... And
0: How how did Danielle respond to that?
1: Well, she was isolated. They were isolated. They're in their rooms, you know, in this house with um, three other students who were just as isolated. You could see them. They were just, they were so withdrawn. And um, so she just... You know, when you're alone in a room and you're by yourself, and it's, you have a lot of time to think, and it just would have been better if they had been on campus and doing things and being with other people. And they needed it at that point. They're you know, um, all, all of the kids. So, on January 17th, while the students were learning virtually, the University of Guelph called a snow day and canceled classes. A week later, they were still not allowed back in the classrooms, and that's when uh, we lost Danielle.
0: Now, you've you've thought about this a lot, and and we're trying to ask all witnesses how things could have been done differently, and I think you have a special insight into how young people were affected by this. And so please tell us your thoughts on how you think things could have been done better or differently.
1: Um, well, the stats that came out, do you mean the stats that I found? You I you,
0: you can tell me whatever you want about how, how you think things should be done differently.
1: Well, um, as early as 2021, um, I read an article that um, anorexia cases were had doubled. Um, suicidal um, thoughts had tripled. 40% of parents observed a deterioration in their children's behavior and mood. 60% of parents met the criteria for depression themselves. Opioid deaths were up 80%. Um, and sorry, eating disorder uh, program referrals were up 90% from the year before. Now, so
0: these, these types of things you were reading, did they match what you were seeing with Danielle and her friends?
1: Um, They did in my case. And then, you know, part of it is sort of looking back and just knowing that, you know, three young girls, two 20 year olds and and a 19 year old committed suicide in January. They were so distraught. They just couldn't go on any further. I mean, (sighs) that's evidence that these lockdowns, they didn't work. They they hurt people. And that can't happen again. And yes, I have some recommendations that I'd like to make, if I could. Number one, I think the Canadian media fund needs to be abolished. I think that the media um, was not report the way they reported. The numbers weren't percentages of people or ages of people. It was just these numbers, these high numbers all the time. And it it created a lot of fear and panic and anxiety. um, number two, family members must not be barred from entering a public hospital when their loved one is in a life or death situation, no matter what. A perfectly healthy person like me should not have been locked out of that hospital that day. I would have been able to talk to those professionals and gotten some advice on what to do. And if a person is deemed a danger to themselves by medical professionals in a hospital, they should not be released. Number three, I think the federal government should come up with a Bill of Rights for Canadian students that guarantees a certain standard of education services that they are paying for. <laughs> and if they're, be, if they're not going to get what they're paying for, they should get some of their fees back. Number four, the unelected bureaucrats in local public health units should not be allowed to dictate everything that happens in our society. Without public input and debate, businesses and colleges and universities are considered businesses and and, must be allowed to make their own decisions.
0: And Elizabeth, do you have just one more because we're, so, we're so over more. time? Okay, I do. I I
1: do. Young, healthy people can't be shut out of schools as long as they were ever again. When it became evident that young people were not at great risk, but they were suffering mentally, and then especially after they were vaccinated, they should have been allowed to go back to in-person learning. It's proven that these lockdowns affected their mental health, social and educational development, and we're still feeling the effects today.
0: Thank you commissioners do you have any questions of Elizabeth Elizabeth thank you for sharing your story I know that took a lot of courage and uh, on behalf of the National citizens inquiry we thank you for your testimony
1: thank you for having us
0: so our next question Witnesses, Mr. Oliver Kennedy. Afternoon. Mr. Kennedy, can you start by stating your full name for the record, spelling your
2: first and last name? My name is Oliver Kennedy, O-L-I-V-E-R-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y.
0: And Mr. Kennedy, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Now, you um, are a recreational therapist. Correct. And you've worked uh, 20 years at that job. You're, you're no longer there, but you're going to tell us about that. Yeah. So um, tell us what happened.
2: Uh, so I worked for my employer for close to 20 years as a recreation therapist, working with seniors and uh, disabled individuals. And uh, in the end, I was terminated from my position for uh, not taking a COVID vaccine.
0: Now, can you tell me basically a little more detail?
2: So why didn't you want to get the vaccine? Uh, To me, things felt very rushed. Um, It was something that being in the healthcare setting, I understand informed consent. And it was just something that at the beginning when the vaccines came out, it seemed very much like a choice. And even though things were rushed, uh, it was a quickly produced vaccine. I wanted to do as much research as I could on it. And it just seemed that a lot of the data I was looking for was just not available, either publicly or from my employer when I asked for it. So that's what sort of led me to vaccine hesitancy, as others have mentioned. And it was just something that I wanted something to be safe in my body that I understood. And I couldn't find any information, really, that would allay any of my fears that I had, and nobody could provide it for me.
0: Now, before it became a, a mandate at your place of employment... Did did the culture change? Did people start interacting with you uh, basically about whether or not you should be getting the vaccine?
2: Yeah, so uh, I had managers who at first uh, said that there would be no coercion, no bullying in the workplace, and that they'd see to it that people would get fired if they were bullying people into getting vaccines. But by the end of it, uh, she was coercing me by yelling at me to get a vaccine. Uh, And it was very unfortunate because it was just a period of a couple months between her Telling everyone you, you couldn't bully someone to then becoming the bully yourself. Can you just describe for us briefly what um,
0: some of that bullying looked like?
2: Um, well, uh, in one case, it was a, another employee who had just come into work and walked right by me and remarked how the unvaccinated were the reason why we were still in this pandemic. And she she knew I was unvaccinated. She didn't see I was sitting there. But at the same time, there were lots of people who would make those small comments uh, and just sort of decide for you that, or decide themselves that you were the bad person for not doing this, whereas you were just sort of, as I said, waiting for more information to make an informed decision uh, when you could, but that never really happened. Did you
0: you have an incident with your immediate supervisor were basically she shouted something out for all the staff
2: to hear okay i didn't know if we were going to go there but yeah she just (laughs) said go get a fucking vaccine ollie and i was shocked by this because she had an open door policy it was at a nursing station and as i left her office everybody who was in that nursing station was looking right at me and had heard exactly what had been said and they were shocked i was shocked myself because Again, after being told nobody will be bullied into getting a vaccine, the very same person who did that was the one telling me to get a fucking vaccine. Now,
0: the person who said they wouldn't bully you. Sorry? That's the same person who said no one would get bullied. Correct. Okay. so now my understanding is, is it was October of 2021 when your employer made it mandatory to be vaccinated. Correct. And then so you were suspended for a period of time. Yes. Yes. And how long were you suspended before you were terminated?
2: Uh, December 3rd, I believe, was the day I was suspended from work. And then that continued up until, I believe, early February when uh, I was terminated over a Zoom call. Over
0: a Zoom call. And what was the reason given for your termination after Uh, 20 years?
2: For willful misconduct for not getting a COVID vaccine. Now, Is there a consequence
0: to being fired for willful misconduct when somebody like you might go to
2: employment insurance for benefits? Oh, that's what I did. I held off thinking that they would bring me back to work between December and February, but once they did terminate, that's when I did go and apply for employment insurance, and it has been an uphill battle completely doing that. from being told that I'm not looking for work and I'm not qualified, I'm not looking for qualifying work because I chose not to vaccinate. That was very difficult because while I was out looking for work as hard as I could, and then to be told that I was limiting my work because I was not getting vaccinated to go find those jobs, it was it was really difficult to hear uh, an employee from the government of Canada telling me I was being denied benefits for that reason. and. Uh, In my initial uh, refusal of benefits I I then did appeal the decision and at this point uh, I was then again denied benefits to which I again uh, appealed the decision and recently in March I've just had my uh, social security Security tribunal and I'm currently waiting on the decision for that. Okay.
0: Now, did your decision uh, not to get vaccinated
2: affect you in any way socially? I have very few friends now. Uh, Out of all my friends, I'd say about 95% of them have decided that I'm not a good person anymore. Uh, A lot of the folks that I used to work with and hang out as well won't return my calls, and uh, I'm considered persona non grata. Uh, My family for a while uh, did turn their backs on me, uh, and that really hurt, because you think you've got someone who's gonna be in your corner all the time, uh, the only person who's been in my corner the whole time has been my wife. And it's, it's difficult losing all your friends that way, especially when you're still in chat groups with people where they're calling you all kinds of bad things, while they're listening to a narrative and thinking that they're better than you because they're simply following what someone else told them to do. Right. Now...
0: <clears throat> you... Um... You also had an experience uh, concerning seeking a surrogate for getting a child. You, you yep. don't have to talk about that, but you want to talk about Uh that?
2: So my wife and I, we were looking to start a family, and uh, just the way biology goes, uh, we couldn't conceive together, so we were looking for a surrogate. And that, I'll tell anybody, is an expensive and heart-wrenching process, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage anyone if that's the route you decide to go. Uh, but to find a surrogate can be a very, very difficult process. Uh, endeavor you're competing with lots of other people in your same situation there are no regulations uh, and sometimes it's the wild west involving money commitments and whatnot and to find and and uh, come to an agreement with a surrogate can be a very arduous process and for my wife and I over the period of COVID happening because COVID started just as we were finally getting to the point of finding a surrogate uh, it's been very difficult. We lost uh, three surrogates total because of COVID. Uh, one was at the beginning and she was worried about the health ramifications of coming from Alberta to Toronto. And that's understandable. This is someone who is doing, uh, was going to do us a very nice, uh, an amazing, solid, a service. And because of that, the reason she decided not to help us is is acceptable. She had her own family to think about. However, after taking more time to match with other surrogates, uh, we did lose two surrogates after that because when the topic of uh, vaccination came up, one it was in the first week where the person uh, simply stopped returning our calls after having matched and started doing legal work, which is very expensive to redo, uh, and it was something that my wife and I thought that we should make sure that this person understood that that's where where we were. And while we were wonderful people up until that point, all of a sudden, we were no longer and weren't getting any communication. And then that did happen again with the second match where, again, we look at each other saying, we're not terrible people, but this is the way people, I guess, think we are because of the way the narrative's been painting us.
0: Now, you had an encounter with your doctor, you were trying to get an exemption. Can you tell us about that conversation?
2: Yes. So uh, I contracted COVID in December after being suspended, and uh, it was around Christmas time. and my wife and I uh, both had COVID, and we both recovered by New Year's. So while being on suspension, I spoke to my doctor, and I said, well, okay, I've got antibodies now. And, And he agrees, yes, you've got antibodies, and you should be fine. And I said, and I'm healthy, and I'm ready to go back to work. So can you write me a note, then, that states that, Mr. Kennedy has antibodies much like any COVID vaccine and should be allowed to go to work. The whole idea of this is what he, mankind's been doing for how many thousands of years. And my doctor took one look at me and he said, what, do you want me to lose my license? Because even though he did agree with me and has agreed with me on many points, we've disagreed on other points as well. Uh, he agreed that I, could, I did not have enough information uh, to make an informed decision. Uh, and he said, what are you gonna do? He says, if you decide not to take the shot, you're going to lose your job. At the same time, I will not write you a note that says that you do not need a COVID vaccine because he did not want to lose his job.
0: And then my last question is, is what do you think should have been done differently by the government?
2: Uh, I heard other folks say everything, and I concur. Uh, it's just a matter of where do you start. Um, the muzzling and the quieting of people who simply had another viewpoint. Uh, Whether it was scientific, medical, social, nobody really got listened to. And it was sort of uh, my way or the highway. And it seemed that that was dictated at so many different levels. The question was whose way still is it and which highway are we going on? Because between the different directives from provincial, municipal, federal, public health, nobody really knew what was going on. The left-hand didn't seem to right, know what the right was doing, and that was still very apparent even when I was working. Everybody was sort of, let's see if this works. Let's see if that works. And and while trying to lead and show that they knew what they were doing, you could see at some points nobody knew what they were doing. And to, to admit that, I don't think we're ever going to see, but to maybe put safeguards in place so that people have to at least test what they're gonna try on us because uh, lockdowns, don't think those worked. Vaccine, don't think it worked. And there's so many things that you can look at what people in charge did and they didn't work. And each time it was a, oops, well, we tried our best. And sometimes trying your best isn't good enough if you're hurting people. And there was a lot of hurt done to people. and, And I'm not the worst done by, but at the same time, I've been hurt. And I think that if nothing does change, people will keep getting hurt. And so, yeah, I'm not quite sure what more to say because they've done wrong. They didn't get it right, but they still seem to have their head in the sand thinking that if we keep doing the same thing, we'll get it right. Thank you.
0: I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
2: all right. Thank you very for, much
0: for your testimony on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry. We appreciate your testimony, Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> so I'm in the Commissioner's hands. We're running um, schedule-wise about half an hour late, and this would be the time for a 20-minute break. Would uh, the Commission agree to a 10-minute break instead of a 20-minute break? So. Then I'd propose that we
3: adjourn for ten minutes.
0: Welcome, Richard. Good day. <laughs> and uh, I'll ask if you can speak very loudly because you're sounding quiet. Okay, how about now? That's a little better. And I'll ask if you would be kind enough to give us your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name.
3: Sure. My full name is Richard Lazotte. R-I-C-H-A-R-D, L-I-Z-O-T-T-E.
0: And Mr. Lazotte, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?
3: In the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I affirm to tell the truth.
0: Thank you. Now, you worked for your whole career as a paramedic and now you're retired. That's true. And you're here to tell us the story about your older brother, Jerry. That's true. So can you tell us about um, Jerry and we'll just maybe back up to when COVID started, hit in March of 2020?
3: Sure. Um, I can tell you a brief history of, of his health prior to his vaccinations. Um, he was 85 years old and very vibrant. Uh, in fact, you'd never guess he was 85. Um, he exercised every day. He had a stationary bike in his uh, living room. He watched sports while well, he did that 45 minutes every day. He went to the coffee shop uh, five days minimum, five days a week, um, sometimes six and seven. Um, he met all his peers, his coffee buddies there. And they chit chatted. Um, he was heavy into bluegrass music, loved sports. Um, and he lived a pretty vibrant life.
0: Was he on any medications?
3: Uh, he was briefly on a blood pressure medication in 2017. Uh, and then his blood pressure was under control, mostly through exercise and diet. And uh, no, he was on no medication.
0: Okay, so when COVID hit, he's on, not on any medications. Is he seeing his doctor for any reason at that time?
3: Uh, no. In fact, he... Didn't like going to see doctors so he uh, uh you, you can probably count the number of medications that man had on your two hands in his entire life
0: okay so what happened as COVID went on
3: well the, the first vaccine was in february uh, the 27th of 2021 and uh very shortly after that vaccine uh he lost his taste which was something very critical to him because he loved to eat and um he lost his taste and his smell as well, but he never really talked about his smell so much. But his taste, of course, was, that was very important to him, all his coffee buddies and himself. I think they went to every restaurant in Chatham, Richtown, Blenheim, Wallsburg. Uh, they ate out a lot, plus he loved my wife's home cooking. So the tasting was a real concern for him. That was the, the biggest change after the vac- vaccine number one.
0: And how significant was that? The the change like I think you gave an example of salt and sugar.
3: Yeah, we, we tested him. Uh, this was probably a few months after after his vaccine. We tested him and he could not tell the difference between salt and sugar. So that that was <laughs> that affirmed to us that he was uh, really accurate in not being able to taste.
0: Okay, and what happened uh, with the second shot? And well, I'll just shot. ask: Do you recall what uh, brand of vaccine it was?
3: Yes, it was Pfizer.
0: And were all the shots Pfizer? Yes. So, what happened with the second shot? Do you recall when that was?
3: Yes, vaccine number two was June sixteenth of twenty twenty one, and shortly after after getting that, we noticed, and it was a slow progression, but definitely a progression of his cognitive functions started being effective. He started his memory wasn't as good. Um, He Uh, Showed a little more disinterest in things. Um,
0: Now, can I just stop you about his memory? When you say slow progression, are we measuring in months? Are we measuring in weeks?
3: I I would say after his shot, we probably noticed it about a month later, his first sign of some cognitive function delay. uh, And then it just progressively uh, got worse
0: okay, and so describe that give us some details about that
3: well, he was always pretty sharp when it came to uh, sports and remembering records and uh, statistics and stuff like that and he began he began just not remembering those things um, and events even in our own family life he's he just started not remembering those things um, and uh, yeah he just uh that was that was a big thing for him um and, and even his bluegrass music which was his his entire life um he just uh started not remembering the bluegrass festivals and concerts that he went to in kentucky and tennessee and all through southwestern ontario and um and, and like i said this was a progressive thing uh it started we noticed it about a month into the second vaccine and then it just continually got a little worse as time went by
0: did anything happen to his appetite
3: well of course (laughs) when he couldn't taste anything um he uh i I remember we used to have him over quite often for supper and uh he used to always comment on my wife's cooking he didn't comment anymore because he couldn't taste the stuff and um he would and he stopped going to restaurants because it's, why would I spend money so all, everything tastes the same anyways. So right away his socialization started dropping right then and there, um, going to restaurants less um, and even uh, start going to the coffee shop less, which was a real indication to us that something's not right.
0: What about his mental state, his mental health?
3: Uh his mental health he was he was so fear-mongered by COVID that that was the thing that he was so fearmongered that that became his his whole life and i know he and a lot of his peers they practically locked themselves in their homes and apartments ordering food out um they were so fearful of this and uh my brothers slowly stopped watching as much sports and concentrated more on cnn cbc ctv and just covid related and uh he became so fixated on that um and you know constantly washing his hands and he just wore a mask even to leave his apartment to go to the down the hall to put his garbage away he put his mask on nobody around um so he he was really fearful of covid
0: now do you remember when he had his third shot
3: Yes, his uh, third shot was December 1st of 2021.
0: And what happened after that?
3: Oh, uh, that's we, <laughs> there was a sharp decline in his health after that. Um, uh, we noticed uh, that his leg started swelling, um, total apathy. Um, he was energyless. He had abdominal discomfort. Um, his his uh, abdomen actually became distended. Um we kept telling him he should see the doctor but he didn't want to see the doctor, but it got so bad that he agreed uh to go. And uh we we, we I took him on December the twenty first to see his family doctor.
0: What about his color?
3: Yeah, his color was very pale, very pale. Uh and he had lost weight um prior to the distended stomach, because you couldn't tell he lost weight when the stomach was distended, but prior to that uh, he started losing weight. That that occurred before the third vaccine. He actually started losing weight, um, and then after the third, um, he was, he was so pale it was it was really quite awful, um, and and then of course he started having swelling in his legs and his distended stomach.
0: So, you took him to a doctor.
3: His family doctor, yes.
0: And what happened?
3: Well, I. I I, I regret this. I, I went to all his appointments for the last years, even this orth, orthopedic surgeon, he had a knee surgery, 2016. And I, I went to all this particular one, I did not go in. Um, uh, I was having some little problems myself with shortness of breath. They, they insisted I wear a mask. I wasn't wearing a mask. So I told my brother, you're gonna be okay to go in by yourself. And he said, sure. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't looking very good then so he went and he came back after the appointment and uh the doctor had given him a uh, over-the-counter medication for cramps because he was complaining of cramps for his stomach and he told me he, ah, he said i'm good to go he said I'll, I'll see you in a year now i think he probably misunderstood the doctor because this was december and i think the doctor probably meant i'll see you in in the new year but he took it so as <laughs> i'll see you in a year and uh, he he was so disappointed. Uh, he said, that's it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not seeing this guy anymore. Um, so that's that's what happened there.
0: So what happened after the the doctor's office? What did you observe with your brother's condition?
3: Well, man, he started declining really quickly, and uh, he didn't want to see his family doctor. He didn't want to go to the hospital. So I thought to myself, listen, you saw a cardiologist a number of years ago for a brief period of hypertension, um, and he saw him once a year just as a checkup, and all those flying colors, no problem. I said, what if I call him up and I kind of make it, it wasn't a fib, but I kind of tried to make it look like it was a heart problem with the swelling of the legs. I kind of suggested maybe CHF, congestive heart failure. So as soon as I mentioned that, the secretary says, yeah, we better, you better so, bring him in.
0: And I'm just going to back you up because you said he sure. continued to decline. Can you give us some specifics perhaps about his belly and his legs, for example?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, his legs kept, kept swelling. The stead of his stomach kept increasing. Uh, severe constipation. Um, he was, had z- almost zero appetite. He forced himself to eat. In fact, we almost forced him to eat something. Um, so, and more pale, became a little bit more diaphoretic, uh, at sweating. Um, yeah, that's was, how we did. Uh,
0: can you tell me about the fluid in his legs and, and what was happening there?
3: Well, it was just a buildup of fluid. <clears> there <throat> was just a buildup of fluid. And, um, prior to us taking him to the cardiologist, um, there was even some weeping. Uh, we noticed in his bed there was some wetness, and we we thought he had uh, voided himself and urinated. And he said, "No, no, no." He says, "I'm fine." And he was dry there, so we noticed that there was some weeping from from the skin of his legs. Um, so that that was really triggering us that he didn't want to see his family doctor. So let's see if we can see the the cardiologist and maybe, you know, through him we can get a little bit better result.
0: So what happened at the cardiologist's?
3: Well, we brought him to the cardiologist and unfortunately um, he didn't show up that day for whatever reason, he probably had a legitimate reason and we saw a nursing practitioner um, and she was very good. Uh, She took one look at my brother and said, oh, he's in in big trouble. Uh, So she ordered some Lasix right away, fluid pill, 80 milligrams a day. And uh, she ordered uh, an ultrasound of the abdomen and an x-ray. Um, and she said, yeah, your brother's in deep trouble. Um, so we couldn't get it done the next day. It was the second day is when we took him in. It was a Friday, I remember that. And uh, we took him in to get the x-ray and the ultrasound. And that took a whole day to get that done. We brought him home. We fed him supper. He lives in Chatham. We came back home to Wallsburg. And by the time we got home, uh, there was a message from the cardiologist, not from the nursing practitioner, but from the cardiologist who had seen the report and said, I've got to see your brother right away. I have him in Monday morning. Um, So then we brought him in Monday morning and actually saw uh, the cardiologist. So you wonder what happened then?
0: Yeah, and you can take your time. I appreciate this is difficult.
3: Okay, no problem. So on that Monday morning, um, we uh, we brought him in. Uh, it was January the 17th, and uh, the cardiologist was quite shocked because he hadn't seen her for a while. Um, how bad he really was um, by that time. Uh, we had we had brought in a wheeled um walker and uh, so he 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 brought that in and the doctor told me he had multiple lesions on the liver and probably some some kidney involvement um, so my brother then asked him is it cancer and uh the doctor kind of hesitated kind of shrugged his shoulder a little bit he says what kind of and uh so my brother took that as He's got cancer and uh so he i remember telling him telling the cardiologist what's happened so fast and uh, the cardiologist then said to us i really shouldn't be involved in this i'm a cardiologist i shouldn't be really doing this that perhaps this would be better done to your family doctor however he says i've seen jerry for a number of years and i just can't believe the change in him, so he says, I'll, I'll order some home care for him. In the meantime, I will try and contact a colleague of mine in London who's a specialist, so it might take me a while to get a hold of him, and I'll let you know how I make out. So we left. We brought him home. The very next day, home care called, and they said, we'll send someone to assess you on February the 10th which was 23 days after the doctor had asked for home care. So we knew that he's probably not even gonna make it to February 10th, in which he didn't, he passed away February 4th. So my wife and I took sole responsibility for his home care, where we um looked after him food-wise, personal hygiene-wise and um we uh, got to the point where um, we couldn't even manage him. He still didn't want to go to the hospital. He still didn't want to see his family doctor. So uh, my wife was looking after him in the bathroom, and I thought, well, let's let's try something. So I, I called his family doctor up, and uh, the Lord was really good because I actually got to talk to him. And I said to the doctor, would you mind talking to my brother? Because he's not listening to us. So we brought the phone in the bathroom and, uh, he talked to the doctor and the doctor said, Jerry, cause I, I want you to go to e- emerge. And he says, we'll make arrangements and we'll have you admitted. So that was enough to convince my brother to go. Uh, so we had to call an ambulance for him. And, uh, We brought him to Emerge and uh, I was in Emerge with him for eight to nine hours and uh, they did all kinds of tests and they kept saying they were going to admit him, but they didn't. And finally, it was approaching midnight and uh, they said, well, you might as well go home. Uh, When we get a room for him, we'll let you know. So the next morning, uh, it was mid-morning, probably 10-ish. we called and he was still in the emerge, and they hadn't found a room for him yet. So they said, "As soon as we get a room, we'll call you." Well, by mid afternoon, there's still no call. So we phoned emerge, and that's when they said, "Oh yeah, they they found a room for him up on the fourth floor." And I said, "Okay, I'll 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 uh, I'll be up to see him." And that's when they told me, "No, you can't." I said, "What What do you mean you, I can't?" And they said, "Well." It's COVID protocol for this hospital. Had, had you not
0: com- had you not been with them in emergency just for like eight nine hours?
3: That's right. That's right, I was. So when they told me that, I, I really couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, they said, "No, it's our hospital COVID protocol." I said, "Is it because I'm not vaccinated?" "No, no, no, nothing to do with that." They said, "Vaccinated, unvaccinated, nobody's coming into the hospital." So I said, "Well, is there?" a way I can talk to him and they said oh yeah we can we can try to arrange that but that day was far spent Um, so it was the next day um, that we talked to the staff and the staff the first thing they said to us was your brother's giving us a hard time first of all this has never been his nature now I know he's very personal and perhaps he didn't like the fact that somebody was giving him a bed bath or whatever Uh, but they said he's giving us a hard time and that's when i said well my wife and i are healthcare professionals i said let us come in and uh we'll gown up we'll mask we'll do whatever we have to do and we can settle them down and and give you a hand no protocol for the hospital is you cannot come into the hospital so i said well i'm gonna have to talk to the administrator and i tried to call the administrator but they referred me to a patient liaison person and she was very nice very kind very polite but she in no uncertain terms said i'm sorry you cannot come in to see your brother and uh they they tried to connect they said well maybe we can connect with skype and every time we tried to do the skype it never worked so then we tried talking to him on the phone and by that time he had declined so much he couldn't hear us he was only giving me one one word answers to any of my questions we tried to tell him that we're working behind the scenes so that we could go and be with them. And um, it went on like that for seven days until we got a phone call on the 31st saying that they had moved them to palliative care and that we could come out to see them, but we would both, my wife and I both have to have a COVID test, a negative test. So the very next day we I went to get my COVID test, my wife couldn't get hers for the day after. As soon as I had the negative test, I went up to see him. (coughs) I was quite shocked that he was completely unresponsive. And uh, (coughs) he never spoke another syllable till his death. (coughs) So for the next two or three days, (coughs) my wife and I spent all our time there we prayed with him we read scripture to him we sang hymns to him we knew that hearing was one of the last sentences to go so we don't know what he was able to take in but we never heard another word from him i was both his power of attorney for health and his executor of his will i wanted to know if there was any last wishes we never got to do that (coughs)
0: Mr. Lozada, we thank you for sharing that story. And I'll just ask if the commissioners have any questions of you. And and there are no questions. Um, Is there any last thing that, that you'd like to share with us?
3: Yes, I I can tell you as a paramedic and my wife's an RN, emergency nurse, both retired now, there is never a reason for a family member not to be with a dying family member, none, zero. There's isolation attire that could be used. There's never a reason for this, ever. I've, I've dealt with infectious patients throughout my career, TB patients, HIV, AIDS patients, uh, bacterial and viral meningitis, MRSA. There is never a reason why somebody who is properly attired in isolation equipment, isolation attire, they can't be with their dying look. Never. Never. So this, this was beyond all comprehension for me. I could not understand this at all. If they would have asked me to wear a hazmat suit to be with my brother, I would have wore one. Whatever it takes. To to me, this is next to criminal. And uh, if something like this ever happens again, something has to be done so that my brother never saw a familiar face for eight days until he became unresponsive. That's all.
0: Thank you. on uh, behalf of the citizens inquiry i'd like to thank you for sharing your testimony and i'm sorry that it was difficult but we definitely appreciate you sharing your brother's story thank you <clears throat> and then the next witness is vicky McGuire, who will also be tending virtually <laughs> So, um, Vicky, I don't know if you can hear me, but if you can, if you can turn your camera on, that would be great. And also your mic. Uh, all right.
4: Okay. There
0: we go. We can see you, and hopefully you can see us. Yes. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to uh, tell us your full name for the record, and then spelling your first and last name for the record.
4: Okay. It's Victoria McGuire. V-I-T-T-O-R-I-A-M-C-G-U-I-R-E.
0: And uh, I'll ask if you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing nothing but the truth. I will. Now, you've got uh, a full 21 years working as an RPN. Yes. And not a regular RPN, but you were a full scope RPN, which is something quite different than a regular RPN correct about that?
4: Well, well, just working uh, to full scope that I had um, additional courses. Uh, I could take blood and um, help out with things that... Just to full... Yeah, work to full scope.
0: Right, okay.
4: Just did everything that was was required and asked of me.
0: And uh, life has a lot of irony, and no good deed goes unpunished. But my understanding is, is in December of 2019 just before COVID hits. So you've worked for 21 years for the hospital. You get an award from the hospital, the award of excellence for nursing.
4: Yes, I
0: did. <laughs> yeah. So just before <laughs> yeah, all yeah, this, quite,
4: quite, quite the
1: irony. Yeah.
0: So just before yeah. all this starts, you're basically being recognized by your employer as an excellent nurse and actually being given an award, the the only one getting it that year?
4: Um, I'm not sure about that, but but, um, I I was given the award for um, having the hospital values of compassion and collaboration, um, respect, um, professionalism, um, so, yeah.
0: Now, (laughs) when COVID hit, you took it very seriously, and can you share for the commissioners and and the uh, spectators basically the steps that you you took in your own home to basically ensure that everyone was safe and and that
4: yeah, um, with watching what was going on on uh, TV and um, the, the amount there was a lot of fear actually surrounding the whole thing and having it you know come towards you know our our, our, towards our hospital, our communities. I, um, We ended up uh, uh, putting up a tent on our front deck so that uh, I would be able to protect uh, my husband who has diabetes um, and uh, I wouldn't bring anything home. So we had a tent erected uh, on our deck and I would come home and uh, strip. In the tent, outside in March, and um, place my clothes in a bag, um, and uh, get a house coat on. Go into the house, clothes into the washing machine, house coat into the washing machine. Jump into the um, into the shower, um, and um, made sure that I stayed in a separate um, uh, room, uh, just to make sure that I didn't bring anything home and and uh, and infect.
0: So basically, Anybody? so you slept in a different room than your husband, yes. um, yeah. just just to make sure that your family was being protected
4: that's right
0: now you said there was a lot of fear at the beginning. Can you tell us about the fear in the hospital that you worked at?
4: Well, um, there was a lack of PPE um, and uh, the, the nurses actually purchased um, facial shields uh, themselves. Um, you know, we were thinking that, you know, we're we're going to be having this wave come and um, that we weren't going to be prepared for it. Um, And uh, so, yeah, there was a lack of N95s. Um, So uh, when we would come into the hospital,
0: And we're just waiting a second. You froze, and we're just waiting for you to unfreeze. So, Vicki, I don't know if you can hear us. But we're having that experience of um, freezing, so we're just going to check a couple of settings for a second. So perhaps what we'll do is uh, we have another witness here who is in person uh, Mr. Um, Ramus Nassu. so Ramus, can we get you to take the stand and we'll try to get Vicky back on, or I'm sorry we're back on so um,
4: okay, does that work
0: yeah sorry um, i don't I don't know what happened there. You just okay. froze, but you were okay. basically talking about. The culture in the hospital that nurses had purchased uh-huh. their own face shields um, and then you froze so if you can kind of just pick it up from there and then where I want you to go next is um, tell us what you were thinking at the beginning and then whether your opinion changed because oh, you're, you're taking big steps at the beginning, you're changing in a tent, you're sleeping in a different room you're telling <laughs> us about fear in the hospital so if you can carry on
4: um, yeah, it, uh, the, the, uh, the, lockdowns happened, so there wasn't really many people in the hospital, like visitors and, and, and whatnot. Um, so the, the hospital became quite quiet, uh, and, and, uh, so there was, um, a lot of downtime, and, uh, you know, uh, what we were expecting to happen didn't seem to, to come to fruition um we had seen other places you know that um uh the pandemic the waves were coming in and people you know they were um so so busy and uh uh time was passing and and I uh, didn't really um see it happening
0: okay so just so that i understand it is because i think um most of us in are watching the news and we're being told that hospitals are being run. Are you telling us that wasn't the experience you were having? Uh,
4: no, not at the beginning. Uh, like I said, in the lockdowns, the hospital was quite quiet. Um, we, we were receiving a lot of accolades. We had, you know, people who were um, supporting us, you know, uh, a, a great deal with pots and pans hanging. banging. Um, we had emergency vehicle parades, you know, come by the hospital. We had people donating food and uh, you know, it was it was wonderful feeling. You know, um, like such a hero, um, and uh, like I said, uh, and we were just waiting. You know, on pins and needles um, uh, for this this thing to hit.
0: Okay, and then um, then basically the vaccine mandates came.
4: Yeah, it, it, it was a. Uh, uh, slowly coming um, into, um, I mean, we worked for a year and a half um, without anything uh, like with concerns to vaccines. We worked together side by side for a year and a half um, and, and it was fine. Um, we, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary that uh, we were really experiencing. Um, and then I would say... The the government came up with the mandates um, pushing the vaccine. I guess it was in September um, that the mandates uh, came out, um, but the hospital was already starting to um, uh, prepare people for taking the vaccine. That was it seemed to be that was the the route that we were going to take. And uh, I remember seeing. Um, uh, a CPR course that was available in house, and that was um, that was in the spring and uh, to attend it, you had to have be vaccinated. So actually that was before it was mandatory, and so I was seeing the um, direction that was being taken that um, they wanted to get the vaccine into everyone. Um, uh, at that point, i remember talking to a a union representative and uh, i had said to them that uh, you know are you going to uh, represent me uh, if i decide not to take this and uh, she actually kind of laughed at me she said uh, i because i had said if if i get fired for not taking this and and she had actually started laughing and she said oh it's not going to get to that (laughs) and uh um yeah sure enough. <laughs> it ended up that direction.
0: did Did the hospital try to communicate with you by email and social media and things like that about the mandate or the vaccine?
4: Uh, we were getting yeah, we were getting a lot of emails. Um, I remember that um, it, it was also a, like an early bird. Um, if you got vaccinated early, you could uh, get into a um, it was an early bird prize, so they had furniture and cash prizes. If, if you uh, had gotten your vaccination
0: early. Just wait, I, I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly. So are you saying that your employer, who is a hospital, had an early bird draw for staff so that if you got or vaccinated early, you were put in a draw to win prizes such as um, furniture or cash? That's
4: right.
0: Okay. Um, Were there other things that the hospital did to try and encourage you to get vaccinated?
4: Uh, there was emails that came regularly um, saying that, that that was the best route to go. Did,
0: did you see anything at the hospital um, that would suggest that vaccinated and unvaccinated people were being treated the same or differently?
4: Uh, not, not with coworkers. Like I said, we worked side by side for about a year and a half uh, with with uh, with no issues. Um, but it wasn't until I started seeing, you know, like I said earlier about uh, having to take a course and you know that uh, to participate, uh, you had to be vaccinated. So that's when I started to see that. What about know.
0: with patients that were vaccinated and unvaccinated?
4: Um, <laughs> there was only. The only, I know that there was uh, some incidences where um, uh, uh, patients had asked for a vaccinated nurse. Uh, only one that I know that was close to me, The it was a co-worker, and, and she just, she had said to the patient that, uh, she didn't reveal her status, and she just said to the patient that um, that we're not going to play this game and shut it down.
0: Now. Eventually, um, you got suspended. Can you tell us about that?
4: Um, that would have been uh, uh, October twelfth uh, when the hospital became one hundred percent vaccinated for staff. So uh, there was a um, uh, unpaid leave of absence for all employees mm-hmm. that uh, were not vaccinated. Um, so at that point, um, uh, we, we had left the hospital, um, they had shut down uh, our, our uh, capabilities to use the, the, our emails, computer, uh, we couldn't get in to see our pay stubs or um, uh, our schedules. So we were like totally shut out from the hospital for uh, that three weeks.
0: Okay, so when you say we you mean you and fellow healthcare workers.
4: Uh, those that decided not to take the injection.
0: Okay, did um, that work? Yeah. Did some of the ones that you know then change their mind?
4: Yeah, there was a, a campaign that started um, from the hospitals from the hospital um, it, over the course of the next three weeks. Um, Perlator would pull into the driveway and deliver a package that uh, would uh, coming from the hospital stating that uh, we were being non-compliant that um, uh, that this was continued disciplinary actions that um, if we didn't show proof of uh, vaccine that um, we would be terminated um, that our actions were uh, on our personal files. Um, And yeah, we had a certain date. uh, I believe it was in November sometime that uh, we had to come up for or that uh, termination would occur. And so (coughs) yeah, a a lot of people did end up going back to the hospital after that period of time.
0: Okay, Um, and you didn't, but you, and then you were terminated. Yes. Uh, Were you able to get EI?
4: Uh, No, actually, uh, everyone that was uh, terminated tried, uh, and everyone was refused. Everyone was refused. So there was no safety net uh, for the people terminated, even though we paid into the system for you know many years. Um, that safety net was not available to the people who uh, refused taking the injection.
0: Now, <clears throat> once you were um, terminated and you couldn't get EI, did you experience any stigma for being what I call an anti-vaxxer?
4: Well, there was a lot of names. Yes, a lot of names, um, uh, prejudice. Um, you know, uh, like you said, anti-vaxxer. Um, it, it was a, it was a difficult time um, that that period. Um, I didn't even tell people that I was terminated. I told people that I took uh, early retirement, which I did. Um, I, a re- I took my pension at a reduced rate, um, but uh, I was embarrassed. Uh, I was embarrassed that uh, um, that, yeah, all these labels. I, I was I was in a job that um, was into service of others and always helping others and uh, receiving that award. I I think tells you how much I loved my job. Um and so when I was in need, it was this there was it was just like there was no one there for those people that spent a great deal of their life um helping other people.
0: What uh were there any effects on your mental health? Uh, uh
4: every uh, everyone that uh, was terminated um had the you know um sleepless nights and uh your world your world changes on your world changed on a dime um which is you you understand that but to accept it is a different thing um so yeah um there's a lot of anxiety you know how are bills going to get paid how how, you know uh, i heard a lot of parents um who had small children you know even the whole family unit suffered a great deal you know why is why is mom so sad and um yeah just you know the having to people ended up having to sell their homes um some people sold everything and left canada um so yeah it was a it was a very difficult couple of months afterwards um we were part of the ontario um oh my goodness i can't even think of the acronym right now
0: United Ontario Health Care Workers?
4: Thank you, yes, uh, we were part of that. And um, we were, uh, had a, a chat group. So um, we were helping each other out. People would, you know, if they had extra of something, they would help each other out. So, and it was a good place for people to help voice some of their, you know, anxiety. So.
0: If, um. If we ever face something like this again how how would you suggest that things be done differently
4: well most definitely uh, decisions were made a lot of decisions were based uh, on fear and uh, I think that that was um, I think that was the worst part of it uh, decisions healthy good s- smart decisions are never come from that place um, we uh we uh we the crisis uh, seemed to build, and everyone everyone had angst and were anxious and uh, you know decisions were made because they were felt pressured. you know, I had a nurse tell me that uh, they took the injection and felt violated, but they were the only breadwinner. Um, in their home, I, I had another um, nurse uh, tell me that a single mom that she didn't have the uh, convenience of having convictions, you know. So um, people did things that they didn't want to, and again, it was you know uh, pressure and coercion, and and uh, I, we really did have to, I think, slow down and look at both sides of a story Uh, there can't be just one um, view and uh, being able to look at something from both sides um, as a nurse one of the most uh, important things you can do is advocate so if something wasn't working for your patients you would voice that you would you know go to the doctor you would say that you know you know that this isn't working the treatment or drug but you had a voice and you were able to, um, like I said, advocate and, and show a different perspective. Um, but it didn't seem that you were allowed to in this. In this.
0: And, and Victoria, you froze again, and uh, I'd say we were at the end of your evidence. So if you can hear us, uh, I thank you on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry for attending. And I can say that uh, your evidence was um, very helpful. I'm wondering, uh, can I get some direction whether or not we should go next to Deanna McLeod, or should we...? Okay, so Deanna McLeod will also be attending virtually. Deanna, can you hear me?
5: I can. Hi, Sean. How are you?
0: I'm, I'm well. It's good to see you. I'm <coughs> going to ask if you could, for the record, state your full name and then spell your first and last name for the record.
5: Um, so my name is Deanna McLeod. And so you want me to spell it now? Yes. Okay. So that's D-E-A-N-N-A. McLeod is M-C, capital L-E-O-D.
0: And I'll ask, um, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?
5: Yes, I do, to the best of my abilities.
0: To just introduce you to the commissioners, you've studied immunology and psychology at McMaster University?
5: Yes, that's correct.
0: And then you worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 10 years in medical, in marketing and sales, and you specialized in the field of oncology. That's correct. You became concerned with the tendency towards biased reporting by some pharmaceutical companies.
5: That's correct.
0: And then you actually founded an independent medical research firm uh, in the year 2000 to assist uh, clinicians in preparing objective evidence-based guidelines.
5: That's correct.
0: And your company is called Kaleidoscope Strategic. So it's an independent medical research firm. That's right. And since March of 2020, you became very interested in COVID science, and my understanding is is that your team has spent more than 3000 hours conducting COVID related research.
5: Um, at, at the very least, yes.
0: Okay, yeah, you smile, so it's been more. And we've asked you to come here today to share your research concerning children and vaccinations. So my understanding is you, you have a presentation to do for us.
5: Yes, that's correct.
0: So um, if I think screen share is, share is enabled, and if, if you would like to...
5: <clears throat> okay, let me just see. Let me know when you can see my screen here.
0: And we can see your screen and we've got it on full screen with a slide that says it's time to stop the shots.
5: Fantastic. So let me know when you'd like me to start.
0: Oh, you can start right away.
5: Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, It's a real privilege to be um, testifying at this uh, inquiry. Um, and what I'd like to do today is walk through some of the data related to uh, use of the COVID-19 vaccine specifically in children, and that will be defined as children uh, less, uh, children will be defined as anyone less than 18 years of age. Um, and presently, I'm I'm just going to summarize really quickly some of the NASI co- um, recommendations. So children 16 years and older were lumped in with adults Uh, And the vaccines were rolled out right at the beginning um, in early 2021. Um, And then subsequently, the Health Canada approved the vaccines for uh, children 12 to 15 years old, uh, followed by uh, children 5 to 11 years old, and finally, most recently, children 6 months to 4 years old. Um, So that's referring to the primary series, which is the initial two doses for everybody um, above five years. And for those less than five years, it's three doses. And so NACI, which is uh, the immunization, um, the group that basically creates the guidelines for immunization in Canada, uh, also recommends boosters in children five years and older, uh, preferably the Omicron booster, And most recently, their guidance uh, specified that uh, a spring booster might be necessary for those who are immunocompromised. So basically, uh, our health authorities in Canada are recommending um, not only the primary series for most children, but a, uh, a series of boosters as well, depending on how old they are, and especially use of this Omicron booster. So what I'd like to do today is to walk through uh, the clinical data that supports those recommendations. So our firm specializes in run, you know, analyzing clinical trials. And what we do is we see if the data, the, the rigor of the data supports the recommendation. So we'd like to, to walk the, the group through this type of analysis today. So um, when we're looking at children, one of the things that we really need to remember is that they have a number of quality life years ahead. And so when we're thinking about uh, use of an agent, what we really wanna do is we wanna make sure that it's ex- it's been rigorously tested for safety. Um, because if there is something that uh, is unsafe, it has the potential for injuring a child and they would lose a lot of quality life years. That would be more quality life years loss than for instance, somebody who has one year to live who's injured by a vaccine. That would also be a loss, but not to the same degree as, for instance, a six month old who's injured by a vaccine. And so the precautionary principle um, and a lot of the rigor and testing was put in place whenever we had um, thalidomide, which was approved as something safe and and, uh, appropriate for morning sickness. And we only found out that it actually caused uh, considerable harm to uh, the unborn child, which was only really recognized whenever they were born and there were there are quite a few deformities, especially in their, their uh, hands and legs. So the other thing that we wanna consider when we're looking at these COVID-19 uh, injections is the type of product they are. And so these are considered gene therapy and so they're gene modifying products. Um, and if you look at the FDA, what they'll do is they'll talk, they'll say that for gene therapy, um, and this qualifies because it teaches our cells to produce a protein via mRNA, that um, the types of side effects that could happen with gene therapy as a class are, are broad and, and uh, difficult to predict. And therefore, uh, 15 years of safety testing is recommended for gene therapy products. And so what we're going to be looking at is, you know, are the, the trial designs that were proposed for these vaccines, rigorous enough to identify all of the different safety issues that could arise from using gene therapy. Uh, And finally, uh, at the time when these vaccines were being approved for children, we knew that there were rare side effects, one of which, and the most concerning of which, was Myocarditis. And so, uh, because you can detect myocarditis uh, at a preclinical or a subclinical level by measuring troponin, we'd want to see rigor in testing, both clinical in the sense of symptoms, but also um, a lot of uh, lab testing in order to see if there's any type of uh, side effects that are occurring that aren't quite clear from a clinical perspective. And so, we'd want to see rigor in testing in terms of a lot of subclinical testing, i.e. tests of, you know, troponin levels, you know, inflammatory markers, all sorts of different things, because we know that we're dealing with gene therapy, and we also know that we can expect certain types of side effects. Um, When you're conducting a clinical evaluation, basically the first question that you answer is, do they need them? Uh, And so when we're talking about kids, if if we realize by looking at the data that they aren't needed then that would be the very first reason why we would not proceed, because you should never give something that isn't needed. That would be applying the principle of minimal intervention. The second thing that we'd want to look at is, do they work? If they don't work, then again, you don't give them to anybody. And finally, we'd want to make sure that they're safe. And again, safety being uh, particularly important in this particular context, because children have so many quality of life years ahead of them, and we definitely don't want to be injuring anybody. So let's ask the first question, do they need them? So um, this is basically um, a plot that was taken from the Canadian COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. And in this plot, it basically shows that at this point in the pandemic, we're three years in now, and Omicron, which is a highly contagious variant, has been circulating widely for quite some time, um, that they found that if you did antibody testing or seroprevalence testing that 80% of children in Canada now have antibodies, which basically confirms that they've contracted and recovered from a COVID-19 infection. So we can expect um, based on any principle of, you know, vaccine or natural immunity that these people would be, have some degree of immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Now we know that children were never really at risk of, of COVID nineteen because there were very few um, severe cases of COVID nineteen in children and, and almost no deaths whatsoever. So we know that they're they're quite healthy, and now we know that they also have widespread, long-lasting, and robust immunity. So uh, how how robust is their immunity? So this is a study and. Uh, I'll just walk you through this one table, and this is a, a publication that was published by the Lancet Microbe, and it was a study, a retrospective study from Qatar, and they were basically comparing natural infection, which is what we talked about the children having, uh, versus the Pfizer vaccine, versus natural infection, versus the Moderna vaccine. So the both of those vaccines were promoted as having about a 90% efficacy. So what we want to know now, what this study is going to show us is how much more efficacious is naturally acquired immunity uh, than uh, these two vaccines. And so when they conducted the study, what they found was that when you compared naturally acquired immunity to the vaccine immunity, that there was the people who had naturally acquired immunity had a 50%, 53% reduction in the rate of infection compared to vaccine so this is considerably much more this is much more efficacious uh effective than the actual vaccine and and when we do cancer research if you have a hazard ratio of 0.47 that's a very very um potent intervention and that would be highly recommended now what they also looked like looked at were cases of severe, critical, or fatal COVID-19, what they found was a hazard ratio of 0.24. That means that the people who have naturally acquired immunity are 76% less likely to get an infection compared to the vaccine arms of the study. And so what this is showing beyond a shadow of a doubt from an observational study is that the naturally acquired immunity is much better than vaccine-acquired immunity. Um, And therefore, based on these two slides, the fact that kids have extensive, that they're not at risk in the first place. Secondly, uh, that they have extensive naturally acquired immunity as shown by seroprevalence tests by the COVID-19 task force in Canada. And the fact that uh, studies show that natural acquired immunity is much more effective than vaccine acquired immunity. We would basically say to the first question that no, there is no need uh, to vaccinate children based on A lack of, I guess there's a lack of need. So then let's go on to the second question is, do they work? Um, And now, when we're looking at clinical evidence, there's not all the science is the same. And I know that throughout the pandemic, many people have said we need to follow the science as if there was one science and one answer. Um, But the truth of the matter is, what you need to do is you need to kind of prove that something is better than something else. And the best way to do that or the most reliable or the least, um, the most reliable and the trusted way of doing that is a randomized controlled trial, which would be considered level one evidence. And when you have randomized controlled trials and you have that level of data, then you're able to say that something causes something else. Any other level of data, uh, for instance, these types of studies down here, you would have to hesitate uh, in a causal relationship because you can show an association, but you can't show that something proves something unless you've randomized it and you've controlled for baseline um, influences. So let's kind of, let's look at the type of study. So uh, there's a lot of observational trials that are out there and that's where, um, you know, they look at real world data and they say, you know, we deployed this vaccine at this point and the rates of hospitalization are lower. Um, but observational studies can't actually prove that something works uh, because correlation does not equal causation. Again, you need to have a randomized controlled trial. And because naturally acquired immunity is the current standard in the sense of children have extensive naturally acquired immunity, we'd actually have to compare the vaccine to somebody with naturally acquired immunity to figure out if the vaccine would be beneficial at this time. And because children are not, the only risk that they have is hospitalization. We'd want that to be the main endpoint. And we would want to make sure that it would address hospitalization in a post-Omicron era. And so we basically need to show a study that compared the vaccine to naturally acquired immunity, looking at hospitalization as the main endpoint uh, at a time when Omicron is circulating widely. And if you provide descriptive statistics, which is basically you might randomize something, but you can't statistically prove that something is better than the other, then that isn't sufficient proof to prove efficacy. So um, here is what I think or our team thinks would be the ideal trial to prove that COVID-19 vaccines are beneficial for children in Canada at this time when Omicron is circulating widely. You basically want to look at at children who are at risk of severe COVID-19 only because healthy children are not at risk of severe COVID-19. You want to do it during the time when Omicron is circulating widely. Because it is a gene therapy, you'd want to make sure that the population size was enormous, 80,000. The original trial was probably about 40,000. That it was randomized that you compared the gene therapy to natural acquired immunity and that you looked at hospitalization. And that you followed this for 15 years as per the gene therapy guidelines from the FDA. Um, But again, when we're looking at the vaccine trial design for the COVID-19 vaccines, we see that the studies were conducted in a pre-Omicron era, which basically makes them clinically irrelevant um, for a post-Omicron era. They were conducted in children who were healthy and had no prior COVID-19, which doesn't reflect at all the children today. Uh, The population size was very small. Um, For their main endpoint, it was less than 500 children per cohort. And um, instead of comparing the gene therapy to uh, naturally acquired immunity, they compared it to the use of the vaccine in young adults. So what they actually compared for their primary endpoint or their primary comparison was the gene therapy versus the gene therapy. And that's called a no lose trial design. It's when a company basically wants to show that their trials are positive, they'll do a non inferiority trial against their own product um, because they want to stack the comparison so that the, uh, you know, if they felt that natural acquired immunity would be uh, that they would lose to natural acquired immunity, they choose a comparator that they know that they can beat or be equivalent to. And so this is not a surprising trial design um, for a company that basically wants to make sure that they get positive trial, des- uh, trial tri- positive trial outcomes. And again, um, what we'd want to see is uh, hospitalization is the endpoint, but what they actually looked at was a neutralizing antibody titers. Um, and I don't want to bore you with something that's too complicated, but basically a neutralizing antibody titer Um, is what they're they're doing is it's it's considered a surrogate or a correlate of prevention they're going to argue that because the antibodies change then there's some sort of level of immunity and therefore that immunity would extend for instance to lower rates of infection perhaps or lower rates of hospitalization Um, but according to uh, the new england journal of medicine recently a recent article published there they they've argued that a, in the post-Omicron era, antibody levels are not a surrogate or a correlative prevention for hospitalization. And so it should not be used. Um, they had a component of the trial design where they did compare the gene therapies to placebo. Um, but one of the things that should be noted in this particular area is this is descriptive statistics and they can't be shown, they can't be used to prove superiority of the vaccine, even though the rates of efficacy were rated and they were told that we were told that it was superior to the placebo because they didn't do any statistical treatment on this data, you can't actually use that as proof of superiority. Again, um, so at this time, there is no trial that's in existence that shows us that this COVID 19 vaccine is superior to naturally acquired immunity, the current standard and that it is able to reduce hospitalizations or severe COVID-19 in a post-Omicron era. So because there are no trials that actually address the question that we need to know, which is the clinically relevant question, we could probably stop our analysis right now and say that there is no data available to support the use of these COVID-19 vaccines at this current time, which is the post-Omicron era, addressing the issue in question, which is hospitalization in children who have naturally acquired immunity. However, we will go and look at the results of the trial. Um, We're going to be looking at descriptive statistics. So this is what the regulators and health officials use to support the recommendations for use. Uh, Right now, we're going to be looking at 12 to 15-year-olds and 5 to 11-year-olds. Basically, what we see is that the COVID-19 vaccines do little, have little to no clinical benefit. So, although they were argued, there was many that argued that the vaccine was 100% effective, that was a relative risk reduction comparing zero episodes of symptomatic COVID in the Pfizer injection arm versus the placebo arm the absolute benefit made available to children was 2%. So only 2% of the children who actually received the vaccine benefited from it, whereas the rest of them did not benefit from it. So when you see an absolute risk reduction that's that low, uh, you have to question whether it's really worth pursuing. And again, we know that children don't have severe disease. This is just a runny nose or a fever Uh, And then that's not something that we would necessarily have to treat with children because it isn't severe. And if we do look at the number of severe cases, you can see that there were no severe cases in either group, i.e. children are not susceptible to severe COVID. And that applied for the 5 to 11-year-olds and the 12 to 15-year-olds. So here we have no benefit in terms of severe disease and only a minimal absolute benefit in terms of mild disease. look at the younger cohort, um, the initial trial design was to be giving them two doses. Um, And whenever they completed the protocol specified two doses, the uh, relative risk reductions were 14.5% and 33.6% for the two cohorts, which basically means that the vaccines didn't work. And so what they did was they did uh what we would call a fishing expedition where they changed the protocol so that it would be so that it could be adjusted to be positive and so they added a third dose um in ma in our particular area if you see somebody who makes this post um post hoc adjustment you basically throw the data out and you don't regard it because you can almost make anything look positive if you work at it hard enough so here Um, they added a third dose. And again, uh, only about a third of the children continued on to the trial to get that third dose. And when it looked at symptomatic COVID-19 cases, there was only a difference of three cases between the two groups. So you've given the vaccine to all of the children in the vaccine group, and there's only a difference of three cases, which again, was touted as an 82% benefit, but really was only a 2% absolute risk benefit. And again, here, um, in the six months to two-year-olds with the third dose, there was only a difference of one infection between the two of them, and they talk, They called that a 76% relative risk reduction or called it efficacious. But it really, there it was only a difference of about 1% between the two groups. Um, in terms of severe cases, I would argue that there probably were no severe cases, although there might have been one that was considered a severe case in uh, the placebo arm, although it wasn't confirmed, so again you have less than two percent benefit uh, for treating all of the children. So again, if you were thinking about the minimum, uh, the risk of the principle of minimal intervention, you would say, is it warranted to give a vaccine or a treatment to? all the children when it really only benefits a very small amount. At that point, what we would probably suggest is that you would treat the children who have difficulty or who might be more susceptible or treat them period and you would probably opt out of a preventative uh, approach in this particular case. I'm just going to zip through this slide here. One of the things um, that is also really important is they did a point in time comparison. So they only really ever measured uh, the antibodies about a month afterwards, and they measured the symptoms about seven days after the second uh, dose. Um, But what they failed to do is watch how the benefit changed over time. And so here is probably one of the better studies it's a New England Journal of Medicine publication that's looking at the six-month follow-up after a fourth a Pfizer vaccine dose in adults. Um, we're going to argue that the, the, probably the, the efficacy of these things is going to be similar. It's probably going to see similar waning in the children as you do in the adults. Um, in this particular study, what they saw was that the benefit peaked at four weeks. So remember, they've only identified the benefit at seven days, and so three weeks later they basically see that the benefit is starting has peaked it's at its height um, and then it it wanes slowly afterwards so by 13 weeks it's basically gone completely so here we have a benefit that helps two percent of children uh seven days only after they get the injection but is gone probably within two or three weeks later Uh, and might even become negative over time. Uh, And so again, I don't think that we have sufficient efficacy data to show long-term benefit uh, for these particular vaccines. So because the vaccines wane, the boosters are required. And because we're now in a post-Omicron era, We've been proposed that the omicron booster is the solution to the problem of waning efficacy, and so this is basically the results of the BA1 omicron booster trial, which was used to support the use of these particular, uh, the recommendation of for use of these vaccines in children. This particular vaccine being the omicron booster. Um, And in this middle panel here, what you can see is that 78% of the participants had no previous infection. So again, uh, because most children today have had a previous infection, the results of this trial are probably not very clinically relevant, but they were used to support the vaccine. So let's just take a look at them. Um, And our regulators argued that the level of antibodies were higher for the Omicron booster Uh, than they were uh, before they received the booster on day 29 after their booster than they were before the booster. So you see this jump in antibody levels like this and that the antibody levels for the Omicron booster jumped higher than they did for the regular booster. And therefore, they argued that the Omicron booster was more effective than the regular booster. Now, again, if we go back to what we know about correlates of prevention, um, it is clear that antibody levels are not a correlative prevention for, um, <clears throat> for a hospitalization, for instance, or even symptomatic COVID-19 in a post-Omicron era. So therefore, all that we can say based on this is that both groups got antibodies after they received the injection, and we can't infer anything regarding the actual immunity. However, they did happen to measure the immunity in this particular study. And what they found is in the group that had lower antibody levels, they had 1.5% infection rates. And in the Omicron booster arm, they had higher rates of infection following those antibodies. So this goes to prove that antibody levels are not a correlative prevention and that there were higher rates of infection on the arm. Uh, that was the Omicron booster arm. And regardless of the results of these trials, this trial, i.e. showing higher rates of infection and not being a correlative prevention, um, our health authorities went ahead and approved this particular uh, thing for children without any specific testing in children. This actual study was run in adults. So the study in my mind would be negative, it would not be applicable to children. And yet, our regulators and particularly NASA recommended these agents in children. So, on to the next question. I would say, for the question where it says, Do they work? the answer probably would be that there's insufficient data to support the fact that they work. Um, and until they prove that it works, then we should assume that they don't work. In terms of safety, um, again, when we're looking at new agents, what we wanna see is preclinical testing. And the one thing to note about these particular agents is that the normal type of testing that you would do, uh, the rigorous preclinical testing for the COVID-19 jabs were not done. So in terms of oncotoxicity, we wanna make sure that it doesn't cause cancer. Reprotoxicity, we wanna make sure that it doesn't cause infertility. And genotoxicity, we wanna make sure that it doesn't harm your genes or your genome. And so none of these tests were done. And so the thought of giving these to children without having done these basic tests, um, is very disturbing. And if we look at the clinical testing that was done, we would want to see extensive testing because again, we're looking at gene therapy and the FDA recommends up to 15 years of safety testing for gene therapy. Uh, we know that, uh, Infl- inflammation is a known side effect. Uh, you know whether it's myocarditis or pericarditis, or uh, encephalitis, or any of a number of different um, inflammatory reactions that we've seen associated with this. And so, what we want to see is clinical testing in the sense of monitoring of a broad range of symptoms but we also wanna see subclinical testing. We'd wanna be measuring troponin levels to see if there's any cardiac damage. We'd wanna see D-dimer levels to make sure that there's no coagulation occurring. We wanna see c reactive protein to make sure that there's no inflammation. Um, but when we looked at these studies, what they did was they be- basically measured reactogenicity, which is COVID-like symptoms for seven days only after receiving the injection. Um, And then if somebody had a severe or serious symptom, they would follow that person for up to six months. Um, And when they basically recommended that this these particular COVID-19 vaccines be released to market and used in children, only two months of data had been collected. So that's two months of data out of the 15 years that should be done for gene therapy. And even within that context of running a study for two months, they only actually looked for side effects for about seven days. Um, And so that would be nowhere near sufficient to be able to characterize the side effects profile of something like a gene therapy over that time. And they did not look at subclinical testing. So there could be damage that isn't clinically obvious yet that's occurring. Uh, And knowing the the mode of action and how these COVID-19 vaccines work um, it would have been important to do that type of testing. And I'm just going to pause right now and say that if I see this type of negligence in terms of safety testing, um, I would probably assume that uh, there's a entity that is benefiting from uh, promoting these particular vaccines um, and that has an alternative agenda that isn't the benefit of children in mind, and that would be something where you would tend to see uh, minimal safety testing or under safe or misreporting of safety testing, and an enhance you'd you'd see the exaggeration, the benefits exaggerated, and the safety issues minimized in this particular scenario. And I would probably say that what I'm seeing here. Fits that particular profile of somebody minimizing safety issues and maximizing efficacy beyond what's actually true. So again, when we were talking about what they monitored very closely, so then we looked at they looked at COVID-like symptoms for seven days following the shots. In the left-hand panel, they looked at pain at the injection site. Uh, and on the right-hand panel, they looked at systemic events. So those are those flu-like symptoms that you'd expect for when you get COVID-19. Now, I just want you to remark that after these injections, after the second injection, and these types of side effects occurred both at the first injection and the second injection, what you see is almost 80% of the kids having pain in their their arm where the injection occurred probably about 30% of them having significant pain in their arm and probably about 1.5% of them and 1.5 in kids, 1.5 in hundred children's arms were so sore that they actually couldn't use them the next day. Uh, and so now if we think back to the fact that only 2% of the children are actually getting uh, running, you know, they had a runny nose for the only benefit for the vaccines that was shown is that 2% of them had less of a runny nose than the other ones. Here we are giving uh, children, 1.5% of the children, almost the same amount of children, a sore arm to the point where they couldn't use it or they can't use it. If you look at fever, another 2% of them had a fever greater than 40%, which is actually very serious. Um, In terms of fatigue, another 2%, Uh, were so tired they couldn't get out of bed and couldn't carry on their daily activities. They may have required medical care or a visit to the ER ER or the hospital because of it. And again, 2% of them had very severe headaches and 2% of them had chills. So for a 2% benefit in reducing COVID-19, which is what an ARR of 2% is, you also caused 2% increases in severe outcomes for these children. And now it's difficult to say whether this was all the same child or different children, but it could be that they are 2% of different children. So the net could be as high as 8% severe um, outcomes in in different children for a 2% benefit. Um, Again, if we were to consider that right now, just the the clinical benefit ratio, considering the risks over the benefits, you would probably say that at this point, it's negative already. However, it's important to look at the overall. Remember that they were following severe and uh, serious adverse events for a month to six months. Uh, And at the uh, two-month follow-up for this particular trial, we noted that the severe adverse events for children who received the Pfizer jab versus the placebo were higher. So there were seven severe adverse events in the COVID vaccine arm versus two in the placebo arm. So that's a relative risk increase of 249%. Um, And if we look at serious, which is basically people who are have to have be hospitalized, inpatient hospitalization, have life-threatening, maybe death, or even being permanently disabled. Again, you have more of those in the Pfizer arm, the Pfizer COVID-19 jab arm, than you do in the placebo arm. And that's an, a relative risk increase of 299%. So again, coming back to our, our original focus is you have children who are not at risk of severe COVID-19. You can see that they didn't have any COVID-19 severe cases in the actual trial, but here you can see that those who were vaccinated were 12 to 15 years old, actually had more severe and serious events occur to them than they did uh, from COVID-19 at all. So what I would argue here is that the vaccine is less safe than not having it at all or that natural acquired immunity, letting children handle it on their own. So again, our regulators are recommending booster shots to these children. And so this CDC graph basically shows the side effects that you get with each dose of the the vaccine. So this is the first dose, this is the second dose. You can see that 80% of children are greater than 75% of children for the second and the third dose, the third dose being the booster. Um, have side effects or systemic reactions that they're serious enough that at least for the third dose, 26% of them can't carry out their daily activities. 20% of them are unable to go to work or school after they receive that third dose. And one of them, 1%, requires medical care. Again, uh, if we were to go back and think about naturally acquired immunity and the fact that it's much superior to COVID 19 vaccines then we would say it's not needed. If we looked at the whether the vaccines are working, we'd probably say they aren't. But one of the things that's very clear is each time we give one dose to a child, we actually cause a severe amount of adverse events uh, to the point where 20% of them are unable to go back to go to school um, following the injections. So let's talk about myocarditis. So this is a well recognized side effect of the COVID nineteen mRNA uh, vaccines. At this point, there is as many as one in five thousand males aged twelve to twenty four that can get myocarditis after the second dose, and we now know that that's an underestimation because um, there's studies now that look at troponin levels, um, and I think it's one in three hundred people who get. Um, The COVID-19 vaccine actually has elevated troponin levels, meaning that uh, it's a sign of cardiac harm. And we do know that severe myocarditis weakens your heart um, and that your uh, heart muscle can't regenerate and it could infect uh, the transduction of the heart and therefore result in severe outcomes, especially with exercise or exertion. Um, the mortality rate is up to 20% higher for people who have myocarditis at six and a half years. So this is nothing to disregard and especially if we're thinking about injury in young children and the fact that they're going to rely on a strong heart for the rest of their life, any type of damage that occurs presently uh, might have um, unknown consequences long term. So, the last thing that I'd like to touch on is uh, excess death and all cause mortality in Canada presently. These are data pulled from Stats Canada. What we can see is uh, leading up to the pandemic or the COVID 19 crisis, uh, there was no excess death. So, that's this looking down here. And then, with lockdowns, when lockdowns were initiated in the age group of zero to 44 years, <clears throat> there was an increase in excess death uh, that was timed after the lockdowns. And here we can see that the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine was administered to people generally speaking, so that would not have included children. And then a second dose uh, was administered here. And with this second dose, what we can see is another increase in excess death across Canada. Uh, timed with the second dose of the vaccine. Now, it's hard to to, play, to prove that this was related to the vaccine or um, that excess death, but we do know that the excess death is occurring in those who are 0 to 44 years, which is the segment of children, and that it is timed with the vaccine. So um If we looked at the number of COVID-19 deaths in that age group, you can see that the deaths are minimal compared to the excess deaths during that time. And so what we would do is we would look at that and would say that that's a concerning signal. There's a temporal association that would need to be investigated and proven to be untrue or that we'd wanna see extensive safety testing before we would move forward with recommending a vaccine that had this type of association in children. So just winding up, do they need them? No. Do they work? No. Have they been proven safe? No. And these are the countries that at this point in time have basically chosen to not pursue COVID-19 vaccination in children and young adults. Um, Among those are a bunch of, um, you know, studies from Europe, um, again England, Australia has made those changes and more recently uh, the World Health Organization has categorized as of yesterday children as a low risk of COVID-19 vaccination and therefore uh, low risk of COVID-19, severe COVID-19 and therefore uh, do not recommend vaccinating them moving forward. So the question that I have at this point is how is it that our regulators are recommending these types of treatments with data that clearly does not support their recommendations Um, and so one of the things that we do when we're looking at um, you know data that looks like this where you know the the efficacy and the safety have not been sufficiently supported um, is we look to see if there's any conflicts of interest in the people who are responsible for making those de- decisions. And so Dr. Carolyn Kwok is the, the nasty chair at the time that the COVID-19 vaccines were approved. And so those would be uh, the shots or that COVID-19 was declared and the COVID-19 vaccines were approved. And one of the things that we noted was that uh, she received a $2.6 million grant from the CIHR to study various aspects of COVID 19, right when the pandemic was declared. Uh, and she's gone on to receive more than $10 million in grants to study COVID-19 and the and various topics since the time of the pandemic. Uh, and so I would probably argue that um, that's a lot of money going into somebody's research career on a on a a product that um, may or may not be beneficial for children. And then Dr. Shelley Deeks is now the NASI chair and she was the co-chair at the time that the COVID-19 shots were approved and she received a $3.5 million COVID-19 readiness grant um, before we even knew whether the vaccines were gonna be beneficial in adults before we had any phase three data. So again, it would seem difficult to me to think that uh, people whose careers are focused on studying COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccination would be able to objectively evaluate uh, data on these particular vaccines and their benefits. Um, And so I'm just going to end with that there uh, and turn it back to you, Sean, uh, I hope that, that, that we've covered a lot of data there, but I think that there's enough to say that there, it's questionable as to why these vaccines were ever really approved in this particular uh, cohort of, of children at the time that they were.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious, Deanna, because you had hinted during your presentation um, that you kind of questioned who benefited from this. You were basically saying that the benefits were exaggerated. Um, and the opposite uh, with the safety concerns, and you're kind of teasing us to suggest, I believe, that it would be Pfizer, or or do you think that legitimately the, um, I guess approval bodies are compromised in the situation?
5: Um, So I think that the way, the manner in which the trials were conducted were and reported basically maximized benefits and minimized safety. But it is our regulators and our uh, health officials who are responsible for identifying these things and for uh, basically ensuring that we've got data that proves benefit before moving forward. And so I would say for sure that Pfizer and Moderna uh, basically uh, presented the results in a manner in which it would further their financial gains, and that there is the people who should have been catching these things weren't catching these things, and so I also wonder what other interests are at play. in our regulators and in our health officials that they would go forward with these types of recommendations uh, based on this particular level of data. It's very concerning.
0: Now, you've presented us with an analysis of the data by the pharmaceutical companies. Have you looked at um, adverse reaction reports in either Canada or other countries? Because my understanding is, is that Canada is getting a reputation for under reporting adverse reactions?
5: Um, that's fantastic. That's a great question. So um, I tend to stay away from relying on adverse event reporting uh, from Canada. I know that they basically say that the uh, passive surveillance system that they have in place is sufficient to detect um, safety issues. and. Uh, that they're monitoring it very closely. However, uh, there's a few problems with that. One, it's passive surveillance, and therefore it it under-reports the level of adverse events. It was never designed to be able to characterize the safety profile of a, a gene therapy. If you send somebody home and you tell them that the vaccine was safe and is, is, you know, no problem, then there's the last thing that they're going to be looking for is safety issues or adverse events reporting. What should have been done is you should have been, you know, under clinical supervision, carefully monitoring people for any type of adverse events and, and a number and a broad spectrum of adverse events because we know that we're dealing with gene therapy, which causes inflammation. Uh, and spreads throughout and that the lipid particles uh bring the uh, mRNA material all through your body and that the mRNA produces a spike protein which produces inflammation. So we should be expecting to see inflammation throughout the whole body. And so you should have a a safety protocol that is rigorously and actively monitoring that type of thing. And so to think that a passive surveillance system would be adequate for that purpose is laughable Um, and you know if we did look at the VAERS system the adverse events reported in and around the COVID-19 vaccines compared to all other vaccines for the last 30 years is not even comparable there's been so many adverse events reported through these types of systems that uh, if you know it's it's almost shocking
0: does that still apply for children or or are you referring just to adult numbers?
5: Um, I haven't teased it out for children specifically, uh, but you can expect that if you see the same drug being used in adults as in children, that you would see a similar profile. Although the dosing is slightly different for children, I don't think that the actual um, profile of the vaccine would look very much different.
0: So would it be fair to say that as far as Canadian statistics go, that we have in no way a reliable reporting system for vaccine injuries outside of the clinical trial data.
5: Um, that's correct. In fact, our firm compared the rates of uh, adverse events reported through um, CFIS to the actual clinical trials, and whereas the you know the clinical trials were catching 70% adverse event reporting. Uh, Ceph is captured about 0.1 percent. So that's like not even one percent of the actual side effects were being captured by that system.
0: So, is there a country that you would think has the most robust adverse reaction reporting system for children? And if you can, if you have an opinion on that, can you share with us what that that country's data is showing?
5: Yeah. Um, again, I. Stick to uh, what you can prove, which is stuff that you would see in, an, in a randomized controlled trial. And so I haven't spent too much time looking at passive reporting systems um, because they're very difficult to interpret and that's difficult to use them to prove anything. Um, however, I've, again, I would go back to saying that the UK yellow card system is probably one of the better ones. Um, and that you do see the same spectrum of adverse events as you would with adults, but with a particular um, emphasis, or not emphasis, but a heightened adverse event reporting in and around myocarditis and pericarditis, especially after the second dose in young men, um, especially when you mix doses, particularly when you give Pfizer and then Moderna or Moderna then Pfizer.
0: Right. I'm going to ask the commissioners if they have any questions for you. And
6: there are questions for you. Uh, thanks, Diana, for your very well-crafted uh, presentation. I have a couple of questions. The first one is, is about the... I understand the challenge to demonstrate efficacy of vaccine because uh, unless you have a very good animal model that would be fairly representative of what would happen in human. Uh, you cannot purposefully infect people to see whether the vaccine works. So you have to rely on surrogate marker, and in this case, it seems that there's been a lot of emphasis put on an antibody titer. And if I'm not mistaken, when you look on the FDA site, it is spelled out specifically that the antibody is not a good surrogate marker for uh, protection against infection. So. Uh, why is it that we keep seeing that in all of the presentation from the company?
5: That's a, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent um, question, uh, and I'll answer it from a, a, a research development and an accelerated approval scenario. So, in cancer, which is where I work. Um, Again, you look, people look for surrogate markers and because, you you know, again, as you mentioned, you wanna be able to identify benefit early uh, and have it point to the ultimate benefit that you want. So for instance, you know, response rate might be considered a surrogate for survival in cancer. But in order to establish a surrogate, you need to clinically validate it and you need to make sure that it, it's the case, you know, re- across different settings Um, and in this particular scenario across, you know, various variants as well. Um, and so, although, uh, you know, there was quite a bit of testing done for the original, in the original trials where they felt that it was valid in the sense that the antibodies could predict symptomatic COVID 19 in the pre-Omicron era. And I would probably argue that that's not the case. In the post-Omicron era, they now acknowledge that it isn't a correlate of prevention, which is the proper terminology for it in the, in the vaccine world. Um, and it isn't a correlate of prevention for hospitalization and for in the post-Omicron era. So to your point, this antibody testing that perhaps they used because they wanted to find a surrogate it is is not validated and it has not been validated so they cannot use it but why have they been using it and i think that when i see this type of thing it's because regulatory bodies um, have bowed to the pressure of somebody in order to expedite approval so if you want expedited approval of something if you want to have accelerated approval get it to the to the market much more quickly you tend to rely on surrogate markers. And so I would probably think that there is some sort of organization entity that is highly motivated at getting these vaccines to market as quickly as possible. I know that there's quite a few people who, um, you know, are considering this maybe to perhaps a, a global, uh, goal to be able to work together to get things to the market much more quickly. But I think that uh, that's only a benefit if you've done the rigorous testing that you need to make sure that these things are safe and effective. Because if we're getting things to market that are harmful and we're making sure that they're in the arm of every single person on the, the planet and it hurts them, especially our children and our future, then that's of grave concern.
6: I also have a sort of a question about the documentation you've presented. I know that you have done a more extensive analysis on the conflict of interest. I think you did a presentation uh, on that, which which was more detailed, if you want. Because one of the questions that I had is: Is there any sort of practice or regulation that would prevent that people that are called on in our institution to to qualify the relevance of any medical treatment would have to actually be shown to be exempt of conflict of interest. It's probably not enough just to declare it at one point. It, is there something that is preventing these people from acting? There obviously doesn't seem to work. If there's a, anything, are you aware of anything like that?
5: Um, well, I think that um, there's whenever conducting a conflict of interest work and we have another presentation at the the citizens inquiry here um, coming up that will delve into that in a, a little bit more detail and you can go on the canadian COVID care alliance to see a more detailed analysis um, as well but on that note i think that uh, the normal way that you look at conflicts of interest is to simply look at uh, has a pharmaceutical company that stands to to benefit from uh, positive recommendations in this case would be Pfizer and Moderna have they directly paid anybody who's involved in um, the decision-making and in our in our particular situation NASI would be the the body that's responsible for the independent evaluation of Uh, the COVID-19 vaccine data and and formulation of recommendations and that those recommendations are then taken into consideration by each of the provincial authorities that make recommendations. So I would probably put them as responsible for things in Canada. And if if you did look at the strictly Pfizer, you know, or Moderna giving them money, there is definitely some level of conflict of interest, but the thing that we noticed the most is that the conflicts of interest come are coming from a global level. So they're being channeled down through traditional funding levels, for instance, with the Tri-Council. However, the research agenda is being set by global bodies, for instance, GLOPID-R, which is a global research network, uh, whose membership are uh, vaccine manufacturers and NGOs that are, have a pro vaccine agenda. And so what you see is the, the projects and that are being funded and the people who are being rewarded for positive recommendations around COVID-19 vaccines are those that are in line with uh, those global entities. And so, you know, I would probably argue that you have somewhat of a hijacking of our healthcare system through even normal funding means, for instance, through Tri-Council funding, because they have bolted on to these research agendas and goals of these international companies or organizations, for instance, the World Health Organization and Glopid R. Um, and therefore, you can see, you know, a vaccine readiness grant of $3.5 million going to the person who's going to be deciding whether the COVID-19 shots should be approved in Canada. Uh, you know, why is she getting ready for COVID-19 vaccines before we even know that they're safe and effective? Why is anybody considering them? You know, the amount of money that went uh, through our government to people to uh, combat or to, increase, to decrease vaccine hesitancy leading up to the rollout of these COVID-19 vaccines, was incredible. Why were we telling people to become, you know, to not be hesitant or around COVID-19 vaccines before we knew that they were safe? Um, these are, I think, really important questions that we need to be answering. Who, why why were we having a, such a pro-vaccine stance? And why were the studies designed to make the co- vaccines look so favorable? And why didn't our regulators stop these vaccines because they didn't have the sufficient level of, of safety and efficacy data needed, especially in children. Those are the questions that I think need to be pursued and investigated a lot further.
0: So Deanna, if I might just add to what you're saying is, the um, as you're aware, the regular drug approval test in C.08.002 of the drug regulations was abandoned for COVID-19 drugs. And the interim order that's, that substituted the regular objective test of safety and efficacy and, and produced a subjective test did something also interesting is it exempted um, the government and COVID-19 drugs from several provisions of the Food and Drug Act and regulations. And one of the regulations prevents the importation of a drug if there isn't a, a drug approval. And that was exempted, so Her Majesty purchased a large amount of these vaccines and was permitted to import them and distribute them to the provinces um, while waiting for herself to approve the vaccines. So it was kind of a classic conflict of interest where the minister was allowed to purchase and import and distribute while she waited for her servants to approve them. So I, it, it, there's just so many interesting things about this rabbit hole.
5: Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, um, you know, you, I'm, I'm very hopeful that this inquiry will serve the purpose of evaluating all of these things, because one of the things that we need to really be mindful of is if a pharmaceutical company sees that this tactic has been successful, I will guarantee you that this is not going to be the last time we see it. And so it's the onus is upon us to identify how it happened and to stop it from happening in the future, um, or we're going to have, you know, you know once the fence has been breached or once the wall has been breached, you can expect the hordes to enter. Uh, so I think we need to, to repair the wall, or um, this won't be good not you know this won't be good for our children or anybody else moving forward.
0: And I'll ask commissioners to have some more questions.
6: Would you make your document available for, so we can actually review uh, them in more detail? Yes.
5: Absolutely. Yes. No problem.
6: Thank you. So, so
0: uh, Deanne, if you can forward them to me, I'll just have them entered as an exhibit so that the commissioners can review your slides.
5: Okay. Well, thank you very much. And
0: there doesn't appear to be any more questions. So, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we thank you for your presentation.
5: Okay, thanks very much for having me. Have a great day.
0: You too. So um, I'm, I'm going to consult with Scarlett and the commissioners, but it's 5 o'clock and we have uh, an in-person witness that I would suggest that we get through. And then um, Mr. Palmer has been sitting all day to finish. He figures he has about 15 minutes. So that would be two 15-minute witnesses if the Commission is, is willing to do that. Does that sound reasonable?
6: Oh,
7: I'm sorry.
0: So are we on, are we live? <coughs> so we'll start... Um, by calling Ramus to the stand. Ramus, if you want to come and join us. <clears throat> and Ramus, we, we're sp- sorry that we're running a little behind today. I'd ask if you could state your full name for the record
7: and then spell your first and last name for the record. Thank you for having me. My name is Remus Nasui, first name spelled R-E-M-U-S, last name spelled N-A-S-U-I.
0: And do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I do. Now, my understanding is, is that you've been a paramedic since 2002.
7: That's correct. Yeah.
0: And, uh, but you were working for a district that at the end of the day did not require vaccination.
7: They did not force us, they gave us the option to test. Right. Okay. So you haven't lost your job. I did not, know.
0: Um But you did um, come down with COVID and now you have natural immunity.
7: That's correct, yeah.
0: Now, <clears throat> but despite the fact that you didn't lose your job, there was um, a difference in how you were treated. And I'm wondering if you can share with this inquiry um, the difference in how you were treated.
7: Of course, yes, Uh, we were given the opportunity to continue employment as long as initially during the uh, during the first, during the second wave, the Delta wave, after the vaccines were rolled out and vaccine mandates became more and more prevalent. We were given the option to do a rat test once a week. And we had to submit that prior to coming to work to be allowed to fulfill our shifts. After the Omicron wave came, we were required to do a test prior to every shift. And these tests only applied to unvaccinated paramedics, despite knowing that uh, people who took the vaccines could still get infected and transmit the disease to others.
0: Now, Did you find... um, there was a difference, so you're at work, you're in your paramedics uniform, and you were able to basically, I assume, go wherever you want.
7: Uh, that's correct. Uh, during work, I was able to attend any venue, or a, I could get on a plane or a train. Uh, I could go into an arena, a restaurant, uh, gym, if I was required to provide care. Uh, and then as soon as I finished my shift and went home, I was uh, basically treated like a leper. I was unable to enter any venue because I did not have a vaccine pass.
0: So you kind of experienced two worlds whenever you were on shift as a paramedic?
7: That's correct, yeah.
0: Um, Can you give us some examples of how it affected you not having a vaccine pass?
7: Well, it prevented me from uh, traveling abroad to visit my father when he got sick. My family got kicked out of the um, recreation center that we attended for about two years prior because we were not vaccinated.
0: So uh, I'll just flesh that out a bit. So your father was sick. Am I correct that you're an only child?
7: That's correct. I'm the only child, yeah.
0: And so, and it was somewhat serious. It was a blood clot, and he. That's right. So, um, how did that affect you not being able to go and care for your father? It was tough. And then you spoke about um, this club, so you're not allowed to go. Are other family members that are not vaccinated allowed to go to this club?
7: My son was under 12 years old at the time, and he was part of the tennis team, the elite tennis club there. So while me, my wife, and my daughter were uh, kicked out, my son was allowed to continue attending the club. Same household. So one member of your household could
0: go and attend. That's right, yeah. And then come home, but no one else from the household could
7: attend. That's correct, yeah.
0: Now, did the culture change at work? So um, after the vaccines and before the vaccines?
7: Yeah, I would say, It changed dramatically after the mandate rollout took place. The mandates and the Vax Pass really created a lot of division in the company. Uh, The majority of employees took the vaccines, and I think it was either following the Vax Pass or an interview by our prime minister in Quebec where he labeled the unvaccinated as racist, misogynistic, extremist, that the attitude changed significantly, even within my company, towards those who did not take the vaccines.
0: So, but specifically, how did it change? So,
7: when you went to work, how did their
0: your co-workers treat you differently?
7: Well, within my company, specifically, there were co-workers that uh, approached management to refuse working with unvaccinated uh, colleagues. There were other coworkers that posted online things like, I hope that the unvaccinated colleagues get sick with COVID and do not get quarantine pay, <clears throat> which was our policy at, in our service at the time. We got 14 days off with quarantine pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and just generally speaking, an animosity towards uh, people who chose not to do the right thing. And h- how did this make you feel?
0: awful. Now, you have um, some unique experience. In, you lived in a communist country. I grew up in a communist country. Yeah. And then uh, following that, you moved to South Africa while there was still apartheid. Uh, that's correct. I got there at the end of apartheid in 1991. And so having had those lived experiences, how did you feel about the vaccine passports coming out?
7: To, be, and to give you an example, when I lived in South Africa, at the end of apartheid, before the transition took place, black, black people who lived or worked for uh, white households were bused in um, at the beginning of the week, and they would spend the next two weeks in the household there with their employer-master basically relationship. And then they were given two, three days every two weeks to go spend with their families back in their home. But While they lived on site in the white household, they were allowed to go and pick up items if the household needed them in the stores, in the city. But in order to be allowed to do that without fear of uh, arrest, they had to get a permit from their household owner that allowed them to leave the household and go into the city to purchase items. So they had to get basically a pass. Now, seeing that experience and knowing that that's wrong, because it's a discriminatory experience based on race, and we know it's not right to discriminate based on race, religion, political ideology, gender. I think it's really wrong to discriminate against people based on their medical choice. And it kind of reminded me of that. Because without a pass, here, you were not allowed to enter a variety of places. In fact, they were really unwanted. Now, in your job as a paramedic,
0: my understanding is is that after the vaccines were rolled out in um, I guess that would be 2021, mm-hmm. um, you noticed a change in both the number of calls and the type of calls. Is that fair to say?
7: Yeah, I would say that the change started in probably towards October, November of 2021, and then it accelerated in 2022.
0: And what was the change?
7: I noticed a significant increase in calls for palpitations, chest pains, uh, an increase in sudden, uh, well, in cardiac arrests, first time seizures, um, a lot more calls than I was previously used to. Yeah.
0: So. What, when you say
7: first-time seizures, what do you mean? I mean a person that's had a seizure for the first time in their life, despite living 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of their life without any seizures prior. No seizure disorder. Is that uncommon? In my experience,
0: yes. And we were, you were talking about um, cardiac issues. Um, can you kind of give us a feel for how much of an
7: increase you experienced? Well, uh, prior to 2021, I would probably come across a cardiac arrest once a week to once a month. And during 2022, when the booster rolled out, it became almost a daily occurrence for a while. So you went from you know, once a
0: month or once a, a week to a, basically a daily occurrence?
7: That's correct. Some days, more than one. What about
0: your experience with um, people that have died? Did the, did the death rate change in your experience? Because you, in your job you
7: see deaths and you attend at death scenes? Based on what I saw in 2022, I saw a lot of the cardiac arrests that occurred that I attended to did not respond to our normal treatments.
0: Now, my understanding is, is that for the health authority that you work at in, in the paramedics, there are roughly about 750 employees.
7: That's correct, approximately, yeah, between 750 and 800, yeah.
0: And of those, roughly 400 are males. I'd say, yeah, that would
7: be a fair estimate.
0: Now, before the vaccines, can you share with me roughly how many of those um, came down with COVID and what the outcomes
7: were? To my knowledge, during the first two waves, which was the original in Delta, approximately 70 paramedics caught COVID. And uh, as far as I know, they all recovered and they're all back to work. Now, what happened after the vaccines rolled out to
0: those 750 paramedics?
7: Well, in our company, there's one case that I do know of where uh, a gentleman in his 40s, after his booster developed myocarditis within about two days, ended up in the hospital. That's one out of 400 in, in males. Are there
0: any other irregularities that you became aware of, personally aware of? There are, yeah. Okay. What percentage would have gotten COVID after the vaccinations?
7: During the Omicron wave, at least 70% of the company got COVID. So 70, 70% other. of
0: 750
7: employees. Uh, yeah, that includes part-timers as well. So some people work full-time, and then there's a group of part-timers as well. It's fairly significant, too. They work in other services as well.
0: Now, having experienced what you experienced, what would you suggest that we do differently if this ever happens again?
7: I would like to see bodily autonomy respected. I would like to see no discrimination based on personal choice. I would like the public health authorities to consider other opinions by other academics, case in point being the great Barrington Declaration, which was co-authored by a professor from Stanford, a former professor from Harvard, and a professor from Oxford, which took into account the high-risk groups and how to protect them while allowing society to continue their life without restrictions or mandates. I would also like to see Public Health Canada run the pandemic themselves without the World Health uh, Organization recommendations like one-size-fits-all, because that's not right, and that's not science.
0: Thank you. I have no further questions. I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions. No questions. So, um, thank you, Ramis, on behalf of the National Citizens' Inquiry, we thank you so much for coming today and testifying.
7: Thank you.
8: I have a couple of questions. Uh, and by the way, thank you for your testimony. Um, I don't particularly understand how a newsroom works, particularly at the CBC, and you talked about a number of people. Um, at the beginning, you talked about Adrian Arsenal coming out with this particular piece. In your experience in a newsroom, would Adrian Arsenal herself or any of those other people just come up with a story and go on air, or was this directed?
9: Every story at the CBC National is is a, a collaboration by many people, and there's a hierarchy of decision making. But a journalist, if I was in Adrian's position, the buck stops there. You want me to say this? Show me the evidence that it didn't come from a lab before I go on the air. I was in a situation a couple of times at CTV where I was asked to match a story by a competitor. And when I investigated it, I found it to be untrue by the people that were in that story. And I had to report back that I can't go on the air with this story tonight because it's untrue. And they said, well, the CBC or whoever put it on, I said, well, that's their error and mine. And let's move on to the next thing. The, the reporter does is responsible for the words they speak.
8: Another question. Um, you know, you, you showed us these organizations, whatever they were called, Trust Initiative, et cetera, and uh, there was one slide that you had multiple different uh, broadcasters on it. I don't know how many of them were, but there were there are many, many of them. Um, if I also understood what you were saying, a lot of these broadcasters worldwide were saying the same things at the same time. <sighs> When does an organization go from an association to a monopoly? And did you do any investigation into commonality and ownership across these different media platforms? I didn't, no.
9: Um, But when they they all follow the Trusted News Initiative, then you have a single point of... Uh, of of information coming down so then now there's only a single point it's kind of like when the World Health Organization is feeding its member nations um, uh, protocols on what to do if you wanted to corrupt all those nations you would only have a single target that would be the World Health Organization and then all information would feed down from there so by by joining this trusted news initiative they're all collaborating on this single idea
8: Um, another question Given the current or the recent rewrite of the Canadian Broadcast Act, do you think that this rewrite will promote independent journalism in Canada? or it, will it have some other kind of effect? I, am, I have to
9: confess I'm not familiar with the rewrite of the Broadcast Act, but independent journalism is not being promoted currently in Canada. In fact, the um, all of the money that's flowing to the uh, various uh, journalism organizations is not flowing to Rebel News, oddly enough, and they are the ones that I see doing the telling the truth. Uh,
8: you mostly spoke about the CBC, but the other... Public, or sorry, private broadcasters in Canada—they um, were, were they promoting these same kinds of stories? At all the time? of them,
9: virtually all of them. All of the mainstream media are. They're all hooked onto this same IV drip of trust over truth. Um, I, I cut a lot of it out for time. Apparently, not enough. Um, But uh, the Toronto Star did a a number of particularly horrific stories, one of which was putting a a, a nine-month pregnant woman in profile or photograph um, saying uh, the headline was um, pregnant and hesitant. And the story was about her journey to decide to vaccinate herself with this unproven vaccine that was never tested on pregnant women. and that was to encourage readers to vaccinate themselves if they're pregnant. Another one they did was they um, uh, falsified their identity in order to get a, uh, a, um, an appointment with a doctor that didn't want to do an interview with them, and then uh, got a prescription for ivermectin under a false name, and then went and fulfilled the prescription under a false name, and then reported the doctor to the, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, um, and then went front page with the story. It's atrocious, absolutely atrocious.
8: My last question is, um, in the hearings in Truro, we had a number of uh, witnesses, um, extraordinary witnesses, actually, uh, extraordinary Canadians, who came forward from different areas, different employment areas. We had nurses, we had doctors, we had um, uh, construction workers, I believe, who were fired from their jobs for either... Um, resisting the mandates or not getting the vaccinations. Are you aware of this happening with uh, reporters and journalists in, in this area as well? I met they... one
9: and uh, who approached me and said that uh, they worked for a major media organization and I think they said they had to take the time off. They basically had to go home and not be paid and then they were eventually let back in when the mandate dropped. But. I I don't know how many. That was one person who approached me and I don't know if there are how many others there may be.
8: Thank you very much. That's all I have. Anyone else?
0: (coughs) Mr. Palmer, thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, There's another one more
6: question. question? (laughs) Okay, thank you very much for your testimony. I'm wondering how I mean, propaganda has been around for a long, long time, everywhere. But I think in my youth it was not, at least I was not aware of it as much as I am. You've been working in the uh, news uh, industry for a long time. When did you start seeing that we were going in that slippery slope of propaganda? And I guess the question I'm wondering about is, What's the exit out of it?
9: That the, the, When I first started noticing it, I showed you, it was, with, was within days of the emergency. The exit out of it is a big, big question because the CBC has not missed the story. The CBC has betrayed Canada and betrayed Canadians by resting on the laurels of decades of hard-fought journalists who did their work and, and entire careers of investigative journalism and they're using that to trick us. So they morphed into propaganda in a moment of exception. The beginning of COVID, we were all on board with, let's all go hide and stay home because we're afraid. But the period of exception is over. You could, you could forgive them for allowing themselves to be an apparatus of the public health because it existed it was a broadcast system that we could send messages to on a daily basis and in a moment of exception you could say okay we're gonna let the CBC be the public health system right now but the emergency is over and the exception still exists so how we get out of this I'm not sure but There would have to be a wholesale redesign of the CBC because I think that it would be extremely difficult for the number of people in that organization to admit to themselves as they go to sleep at night that they cause deaths by misinforming people and disinforming people. It's a very tough thing to get out of.
0: And and if I can just break in, Commissioners, we have uh, Dr. Robert Malone coming on in five minutes and 24 seconds, and we should take a break before then. I, don't and I mean I mean no line. disrespect, Mr. Palmer, your evidence has just been fantastic. but if uh, the commissioners agree, I think we should stand down for five minutes. And I'd like to recall to the stand uh, Mr. Rodney Palmer, who um, we didn't have time to finish him this morning because of another witness being scheduled and Mr. Palmer uh, I'll just remind you uh, that you swore to, or you promised to tell us the truth this morning. And you still uh, promise to tell us the truth? Yes. Okay. So I'll just ask you to pick up where you left off.
9: Yeah. Just to refresh, I was—if um, we can get the PowerPoint going—I was discussing um, the CBC specifically, uh, as my role as a journalist there previously, and the difference between news gathering and propaganda. And I'll try to um, just try to get control over this, which, and I'll go down to where I, the slide that I was at. Um, Which was talking about the, uh, the trucker's convoy and the nature of the photographs, uh, these three photographs that had, um, offensive racist flags. And those were the basis on which, um, the Prime Minister said he would not speak to Anyone at that, uh, at the truckers convoy protest. And Rebel News had done an investigation showing that the flags, uh, were there very briefly, if not for split seconds, and they were taken by, uh, photographers that had been, had associations with the Prime Minister's office. And we got to the point where, um, the Rebel News reporter identified that the first tweet of the Nazi flag was by a man named Justin Ling who works for the CBC. And the second tweet was by Amneet Singh, who works with Jagmeet Singh. And this was very curious because the source of who took that photograph was never given. And um, so Rebel News had done this amazing report, and I encourage anyone to look at it. It's about 17 minutes long, and it's by an excellent reporter named Alexa Lavoie. And they, pl- they plausibly connected these racist flag photos to Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, and a CBC reporter who's known for broadcasting propaganda against people who question the government's COVID response. So where's the CBC on this story? Why aren't they telling this story? And I would, I would say that they're too busy practicing propaganda. While the Rebel News conducted the most important investigative journalism in Canada, I have not seen a piece that's better than this uh, in the last three years. And the reason this is important is because this was the Prime Minister's founding myth on which he declared the trucker's convoy to be racist. And this is what people across Canada heard. And I've had dinner with good old friends who say, damn those truckers, those racists, those Nazis. And I think, well, I was there and you weren't. but. You know, I like to keep my friends, so I don't say much. But this was a founding myth; it was a false myth, and it 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 set the tone going forward for the prime minister to refuse to listen, to speak, to hear what those thousands of people wanted to say, and instead to invoke the emergency measures act and have them cleared out violently. Another thing that was really significant was that uh, in December. Of 2021, a CBC reporter quit at, at um, CBC Winnipeg, and I had heard this interview on a podcast where this reporter, Marion Klawick, who had 35 years of experience. I don't have 35 years of experience. This is a senior reporter, a senior journalist at CBC Winnipeg who, and, and when you're at a, a smaller city like Winnipeg and you've been 35 years on the CBC, you're a celebrity in your town, and people were coming up to her and saying, look at but the vaccine injury, and I know somebody, and we're hearing these people, and these stories were coming forth to her. And so she did an interview with a couple of them. And then she um, found uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, which is an independent group of scientists who are publishing the truth about the, uh, for example, um, analyzing the Pfizer data that was put forth to, uh, to uh, promote the vaccines. And she put two of them into the story, and it was about to go to air, And somebody said, well, wait a minute, this isn't what we're saying. We're not saying the vaccines uh, cause injury. We're saying they're safe. So we better send this down to the Toronto Health Department for approval. And so somehow the Toronto Health Department had editorial control over COVID stories at CBC Winnipeg. And it came back with, yeah, you can put that story out, but you can't use those two doctors. With the COVID Care Alliance, you have to use these other two doctors who will say the vaccines are actually safe and effective. And things like this were happening so much to this reporter that she took an early retirement and left the job that she had loved her whole life and the people who become your family and your employer. So this happened. She's spoken about it publicly. At the same period, CBC Manitoba published a story that said any claims that COVID-19 vaccines may have long-term side effects are completely untrue. So they had a reporter with people on camera, on tape, recorded saying they were injured by the vaccines. They had two university professors and these were top people. This was one at UBC named Stephen Pellick, who is a, uh, as I understand it, he teaches uh, pharmaceutical regulation and development and another professor of virology at uh, the University of Guelph who had actually receive money from the government of Ontario to develop a COVID vaccine. So these weren't just people talking through their hat. They were the top authorities that any journalist would go to for expert opinion. And at the same time, CBC Manitoba says that it's completely untrue. That's what they put on air. This is a lie, this is disinformation, and this is propaganda by the CBC. One of the ways that they do this is they have their regular experts, and these are just a couple of them, Tim Caulfield and Maya Goldenberg. You can hear them regularly on CBC Reports. Tim Caulfield isn't even a scientist. He's a law professor at the University of Calgary. In April 2020, just when the emergency had been declared, he received $381,000 in federal and provincial grants to combat COVID misinformation. $381,000, and he gets to be interviewed on the CBC a lot. A year later, in April 2021, he received 1.75 million from the federal health minister directly to counter COVID vaccine misinformation. And I've seen um, public conferences that are sponsored. And, and led by him about uh, how do you trust the media? Who do you trust in COVID? And it's all this propaganda about vaccine hesitancy, pushing vaccines. And the other one, for example, Maya Goldenberg, is a vaccine hesitancy expert. Who knew there was a psychological condition called vaccine hesitancy? I didn't know this. And in April 2022, she received Government of uh, Canada funding to study the politics of health and the root causes of medical distrust. We distrust them because we're being lied to. It's simple. I could save the money for them. So this is strongly favoring particular interests, which fits the definition of propaganda, where they're not seeking other opinions to counter it. They're using the same people over and over who are actually funded by the federal government to deliver a particular message, and they put them on as neutral experts, and they don't tell the unsuspecting listeners to their dinner uh, uh, newscast that these people are actually paid to tell you what they're telling. They, they, they disguise it as news. They're disguising propaganda as news. And this is happening daily on your CBC, even today. By some miracle, at the end of January, three months ago, the CBC published a story that said that New Brunswickers of all provinces have reported more than a thousand adverse reactions to COVID-19 vaccines. 300 of them were serious. In the same story, This is called burying your lead, by the way, in journalism. In the same story, across Canada, 10,565 adverse events were considered serious in nature. So I can imagine what serious is, but I actually looked up what their definition of serious is. It's death, life-threatening, hospitalization, or permanent significant disability incapacity or birth defect. 10,565 Canadians. About a month later, 200 of them went to the CBC building in Toronto and plastered the front of that building with their pictures of their faces, their names, and what went wrong because of the vaccine. This is an act of mild vandalism, where these people are saying, enough, CBC, here we are. We exist. We're Canadians. We're injured. And all along, you're saying it's safe and effective, and we're suffering because of it. Ten days later, they still didn't publish a single story about all those people who went and plastered their faces on the front of the building. On March 10th, I heard a very prominent show on a Saturday on CBC Radio called Day Six by, again, one of the most excellent broadcasters we have in Canada, Brent Banbury. So Brent was doing a story on Saturday morning called about a documentary called Died Suddenly. And this is by an independent journalist who's actually trying to figure out all of these sudden adult death syndrome, what's going on, and linking it to the vaccines. But instead of having the documentary maker on, he said the documentary maker who made that is a right-wing extremist and connected to conspiracy theorists, and he had a second journalist on from Mother Joan Ma- Ma- Jones Magazine, and together they just disparaged him and defamed him and said he uh, has links on social media to some untoward people, and he's a, he's a conspiracy theorist. So at no point, I didn't even hear about this documentary until they and I went and looked it up, and I found out they interviewed morticians about why people are dying suddenly. So at this same time... On March 3rd, so seven days before, the Canadian government updated its infobase to point out that a total of 427 reports with an outcome of death have been reported in Canada following vaccination. This is from a Canadian government website. So while the Canadian government is reporting 427 dead Canadians, instead, and, and as somebody did a documentary about this, Instead of having the documentary maker on, Brent Banbury simply ignored that there's 427 dead Canadians from COVID vaccine and called this guy a conspiracy theorist. That was his item. It was ridiculous. It wasn't journalism. It was intentional manipulation of public opinion, which is propaganda. Here's one little story. Carol Pierce. This is in Sask Today. Carol Pierce on the right died during the 15 minute waiting period after she got her booster period. At minute seven, she'd keeled over on the chair and died. Did Carol believe that the vaccines were safe and effective? She must have, because she took three of them. Part of the sea change that's happening now is happening in the United States with the Children's Health Defense that's led by Robert Kennedy Jr., and he has launched a lawsuit. This lawsuit is filed on January 10th, and it is a lawsuit against the Trusted News Initiative members. Associated Press, The Washington Post, BBC, and Reuters are named in this lawsuit. And specifically, the antitrust laws in the United States have to do with monopolization. And what they're saying is by shutting out voices like the Children's Health Defense and other people who are legitimate alternative news organizations, you're making it so they can't make money. So they're not getting them on the lie or the censorship, they're getting them on their inability to make money, which is against the law in America. And we'll see how this lawsuit plays out. Remember that the CBC is an active member of the Trusted News Initiative, and whatever is said about these four organizations in this lawsuit can go for the CBC as well. One thing that we have in Canada, curiously, is under our criminal code, is that it is a crime for the willful promotion of hatred. To identify a group as anti-vaxxers simply because they choose for whatever reason they have or they've been asked by their doctor not to take a vaccine, the CBC has actively promoted fear and hatred against these people. And specifically, the code says willfully, anyone who willfully promotes hatred against any identifiable group is guilty. One of the defenses is that if the statements were relevant to any subject of public interest, which could be COVID, the discussion of which was for the public benefit, which they could argue, and if on reasonable grounds they believe them to be true. I hate to single out Brent Brent Banbury because I think he's awesome, but seven days after the Canadian government published that 427 Canadians are dead from this vaccine, there are no reasonable grounds for him to disparage somebody who's pointing that out. They are actively, knowingly, intentionally, and maliciously promoting hatred, against people who are unvaccinated in this country. So into my summation, between March 2020 and the present, CBC is suppressing critics of government policy on COVID-19 response. They are misleading Canadians that COVID-19 vaccines are 100% safe. They are falsely broadcasting that ivermectin is deadly to humans when in fact it is a life-saving medicine and has been proven so in their own stories for COVID-19. And they're promoting an identifiable group that they call anti-vaxxers, fomenting fear and hatred against them in order to get more of these deeply flawed vaccines into the bodies of more Canadians. None of this is news gathering, which we all expect them to do. They are standing on the shoulders of decades of excellent journalism to trick us into believing they're telling us the truth. And this is happening on the very next newscast you'll listen to an hour from now. They're collaborating with the Canadian government, which is causing confusion because we believe the CBC to be telling the truth. It creates confusion. Canadians are not informed that the vaccines have caused permanent side effects in tens of thousands of people and the death of hundreds of people at least. And if we can go by what other people have testified, maybe 1% of these have been reported and the government is admitting to 427 dead Canadians. They don't say that at the beginning. The Vaccines are safe and effective, although the government does report that 427 Canadians have died. What if they said that? What if they said every newscast, the government admits that 427 Canadians have died of COVID and it's on their website? How would that change the notion of who's right or who's wrong when they let it go in their arm? And I would put forth that this confusion was made possible because of the CBC. In fact, the government rollout of the vaccines was impossible without the collaboration of the CBC. They took an exceptional moment to decide that they would not be journalists, that they would instead be public health messengers. But the emergency is over, and the exception continues. An exceptional time could be allowed for forgiveness. But the temporary suspension of journalism at the CBC starting in March 2020 and the adoption of its new position of government public health messenger has failed to expire with the end of the emergency. And the result is that Canada's national broadcaster has morphed into a state broadcaster. And I worked in countries where there were state broadcasters. China, Syria, Malawi, North Korea. It's promoting government policy without question while censoring, belittling, and shaming learned Canadians who dare to object and attempt to inform us of the truth. Bad journalism is incompetence, but propaganda is a betrayal. And that's what CBC has done. It's betrayed us all. Thank you.
0: So I'll just ask if the commissioners have any questions before I dismiss Mr. Palmer. <clears throat> Mr. Palmer, thank you so much for coming and uh, both times, both this morning and this afternoon. Uh, the NCI is, is very grateful for your testimony and the insights you've shared. And I'm very grateful for all of you for doing this. Thank you. So we just um, need to make a, a decision about whether we're calling a couple of virtual witnesses that have been waiting patiently
3: for about an hour.
7: So, Commissioners, I'm I'm being asked to ask you if you'd be agreeable to hear
0: two um, virtual witnesses, one that was slotted for 15 minutes and one that was slotted for 10 minutes. I guess where are go so um, if you can please bring up Leanne Duke who should be on Zoom. Leanne can you hear us can you give us your camera there you are and give us a sound test
10: hi can you hear me
0: we can hear you I'm wondering if you can adjust your camera that's a little better and we apologize that we've kept you waiting, we've just, these things are sometimes hard to time. I'd like to start by asking if you could state your full name for the record, and then spell for the record your first and last name.
10: Um, my name is Leanne Du, L-E-A-N-N-E-D-U-K-E.
0: And Leanne, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and noth- nothing but the truth? Yes. Now, my understanding is, is that you are uh, an office manager, you deal with financial reporting and accounting and payroll and human resources and health and safety. Yes. So you've, you've got quite a, a, mix, a mixed bag. And my understanding is is you're here today to tell um, what happened with your father, Wayne Duke, when the COVID um, pandemic arrived and we started having restrictions on us. So can you basically start with explaining that you were his primary caregiver and what that means?
10: Yes, so I was my dad's uh, primary caregiver. He had um, advanced Parkinson's disease and advanced dementia. So he was living in a retirement home at the beginning of the pandemic.
0: Okay. Um, And what type of care did did you give to your father?
10: when he first went to the home they were supposed to take his care over but there was a lot of problems with that so I would go in every single morning Monday to Sunday and I would provide his medical care Um, he had a pump that was hooked up to his um, he had a tube that went in his stomach Uh, there was a hole which was called a stoma and so the pump would diffuse medication into him consistently throughout the day Um, the stoma required proper cleaning every morning and night so every morning i would go in i would provide his medical care Um, i would also clean his room i would trim his nails shave him cut his hair um, clean his dentures stock the depends in his drawer
0: so now in addition to having the stoma, your father had another condition that made cleaning his room very important. Am I right about that?
10: Yes. Yeah, so that was his Parkinson's. Um, he, was, he had advanced Parkinson's, so he couldn't have anything in front of him. His room had to be, like the floors had to be free of objects. His furniture had to be around the perimeter of the room because if anything was in front of him... Um, like directly in front of him, he would, his whole body would freeze and he would fall.
0: And my understanding is, especially with regards to the stoma, uh, you attempted to train the staff at the facility, but they just were not up to the task. Yes. So when you say you went in every morning before work, this, this was essential care that you were providing. Yes. And, yes. and then you're telling us you went every night for two or three hours.
10: Yeah, so every, every night um, before the first lockdown, I would go and do his medical care every morning, and then I would drop his dog off, who would stay with him for the day, and then as soon as I was done work, I would go and I'd sit with him and hang out with him for two or three hours every night before I went home.
0: Now, <clears throat> the first lockdown, at my understanding, came um, March 31st, 2020. Can you tell us about that experience and how it changed
10: things? So I I received a call on March 31st, Um, it was probably around lunchtime from the owner of the home, and she said, I was no longer allowed in to provide his care, and um, his dog was no longer allowed to be there either. So she said, when you're done work, you need to come get his dog, and you can no longer um, come in in the mornings to provide his care. So, this went on until um, I was locked out from March 31st until October 21st was the the day I was allowed back in.
0: And then when you were able to attend back on... (coughs) Well, let me just back up. Even though you weren't able to attend after March 31st, you were allowed to take him to medical appointments, am I right?
10: yes so all social absences were not permitted they weren't allowed to go out for social absences but if they required a medical absence um, they were i was allowed to take him to his medical appointments so when i would um, he had a lot of medical appointments because in two and a half years he lost um, 17 dentures so that required a lot of appointments to replace those and So every time I would take him out, I would check his stoma, and it became extremely infected. And also, when I would be talking with him on the phone, he would be wincing in pain all the time, um, telling me how bad his stomach hurt. And not once did the home ever contact me as his uh, power of attorney for care, as his substitute decision maker, um, to notify me of the state of his stoma.
0: Okay. Now, you had um, you'd actually documented what you're speaking about by taking photos yeah. of his stoma. Am I correct with that? And David, can yes. you help me? I've got this up on the computer. Can you pull that up? So, <coughs> Leanne, my understanding is these are all photos that you've taken. And yes. I'll scroll down. But the um, well, actually, I'll scroll up. You had typed in there, this is how the stoma always looks in my care, and that's the top picture.
10: Yeah, so that's how his stoma is supposed to look.
0: So when you describe that there's literally a tube going into his belly, there is a tube going into his belly here. Yeah. And that doesn't look inflamed or it doesn't look dirty at all.
10: No, and and that's how it always looked when I was doing his care every morning.
0: Okay, I'm going to scroll down to some other pictures you've taken. And you've, you've typed into this document. These are pictures taken of his stoma. During the first lockdown, I took these pictures when I took him out to medical appointments. Yes. So <clears throat> we will enter this as an exhibit so that the commissioners will be able to refer to this whenever they want. Um, but <clears throat> how, how would you describe the difference in these pictures, just for the record?
10: so that like his stoma was just oozing all this discharge and pus you can see um, what they call it uh, a skin tag which developed right around the hole that was very inflamed and large and um, i'll also say like once i was allowed back in in um, october 21st within one month, I pretty much had his stoma looking back to normal. But it was like this during the entire first wave lockdown.
0: And I'm just going to scroll down. There's another um, photo. And you have typed on here, this was the stoma on March 26, 2022, when the home changed his plan of care from cleaning his stoma morning and night 14 times a week down to three times a week.
10: Yeah. And the home told me that his stoma was not infected with this picture on that day. They told me there was absolutely no infection, and his stoma was fine
0: so so not only are are you seeing these this uh, his stoma in a just an awful condition, but he's reporting to you on the phone when you're having phone conversations that it's uncomfortable yeah.
10: he would be he wouldn't say it was directly related to his stoma. He kind of lost that capacity. He was just, he'd be talking with him and he would just start wincing in pain. Like it was just like, oh, like he'd constantly be making those sounds when I was talking to him on the phone. And I'd ask him what was wrong and he said it was stomach pains.
0: Okay, now you had said earlier in your testimony that you weren't able to drop his dog off every day. So can you explain for the commissioners what You know what the routine was and tell us about this dog and then tell us about the effect of your dad not being able to have the dog every day
10: it was very detrimental to him so going to a home obviously um, wasn't my first choice but he required care 24 7 and it was a very big adjustment to him so being able to drop his dog off and have his dog spend the day with him um, in spite of his Parkinson's, he would still go out walking every day, so he would take his dog on these walks every day, and he would—he um, he had a background in training dogs, so he would sit there and he would train his dog in his bedroom, and he just really enjoyed spending time with him, and when his do- um, dog was no longer allowed to go to the home to be with him, he kept thinking that um, he had his dog and he lost him. And so he would actually start wandering. Um, There was a time one night, it was uh, around midnight, I got a call from the home that my dad had went out and he was looking for his dog at midnight because he kept forgetting that his dog wasn't allowed there and he kept thinking he lost him. There would be other nights I'd be talking with him on the phone and he kept, he'd be all depressed and he would and I'd say what's wrong and he said well you lost him and I would say I lost who? and he'd say well well you lost Ozzy his dog and I would say no I didn't lose him he's here with me but he couldn't comprehend because he wasn't seeing his dog every day and it, he became extremely extremely depressed
0: Okay, and so, and my understanding is, is your dad had basically a walkout unit with his own door to the outside.
11: Yes.
0: So, even though he had his own door to the outside, they wouldn't let you drop his dog off for the day? No. Now, when you were able to come back in in October 2020, that was because they made an exemption for essential caregivers?
10: Yeah, so um, it was in September of 2020, I believe the government classified essential caregivers and said they had to be, um, they could no longer be a strict, re- rest, um, restricted from providing care. So I was allowed, the home finally let me back in in October to start providing his care again. So when I was um, allowed to back in to provide his care, they said, you can just come in your dad's patio door in the morning and at this time the public health was saying if a caregiver was providing any type of care and you were in a certain proximity you had to wear face goggles you had to wear gloves you had to wear a gown and a mask and there was also all the screening questions you had to do and i can say not once um during that time that i was coming in this patio door did the home ever screen me did they ever ask me for my weekly PCR test result? And they were also the ones that were supposed to provide the gown, the gloves, and the eyewear. And not once did I ever wear anything like that while he was at the retirement home. I would just wear a mask and do his medical care every day.
0: So this home that wouldn't even allow you to drop his dog off at his door when you were allowed to return back didn't comply in any way with the testing, no. screening, and PPE requirements at the time. Exactly. Now, your dad eventually got moved to long-term care. Can you tell us about that?
10: Yes. So he his dementia was getting worse, and the, the retirement home was quite negligent. So on September 1st, uh, 2021, he got a bed in a long-term care home. So... Um, before he went to the long-term care home, I had told them I'm not vaccinated. The director of care said, oh, that's not going to be a problem. You're still going to be allowed in. And, um, and so from September until December, I would go in every single night. Um, I guess, well, actually, in the, in the first month that my dad was there, I was going in every morning, um, every night after work. And then I'd go back in at 10 o'clock to train the nurses on his care. So they took over his stoma care and then, so come October, I was just coming in every day after work and I was taking him out walking. Um, He had a high incidence of falls, so they confined him to a wheelchair. So so he wasn't allowed to walk anymore and I was very worried that he would quickly lose all his muscle mass, Mm -hmm. so every single night after work I would come in and I would walk him in the parking lot. So I'd I'd go I'd come in, and I'd say 90% of the time when I would get there, he'd be sitting in wet briefs, so I would have to change him and clean him up, put new pants on him, and then we'd go out walking in the parking lot every day.
0: And <clears throat> did a point come where you were no longer able to take your father out?
10: Yes, yeah, so on December 10th, I got a call in the afternoon that um, due to my vaccination status I was no longer permitted entry into the home and it wasn't even in the government directives until December 15th. So December 15th the government follows suit and they banned all unvaccinated um, caregivers from long-term care.
0: So were you able to have him for any short-term absences after that time?
10: From December 10th until December um, it was 29th or 30th, the home um, and the directives allowed social absences at that time. But if I took my dad out on a social absence, when he returned, they required him to be antigen tested upon return. And then he'd had to have a PCR test on day three and a PCR test on day five.
0: And because of his dementia, that was problematic, wasn't it?
10: Yes, and his Parkinson's, he was constantly moving around. His, um, he, he had constant sudden movements and there's a lot of literature on the negative effects of swabbing individuals with dementia. It can be a very scary experience for them so um, even so christmas day my dad was technically still allowed um, to have a social absence but prior to this the activity director from the home called me and she said due to your vaccination status if you take your dad out for christmas he will be required to be isolated for seven days in addition to all the testing so it was um, a very hard decision to make i I said to myself, like, this could be his last Christmas. You never know. So do I leave him in there so that he doesn't have to go through the testing and be isolated for seven days, or do I take him out? And I decided to take him out. Because, um, like I said, if this was his last Christmas and he spent it alone, it would just it would kill me inside. So I took him out and... Um, he was very despondent however so on december 10th when i was no longer permitted entry within three days he lost his ability to communicate he became completely despondent he just he gave up this was there were so many lockdowns during the three years and this was it for him he he just completely gave up and so when i brought him out for christmas he had no interest in opening presents Mentally he didn't really seem to be there. He was just despondent. He didn't care about food, which if he knew my dad, he loved food. And he didn't he didn't care about food. He didn't care about his dog. Um he was just he he just wasn't really there mentally. So I brought him up for Christmas and then the next day I called the home and said I'd like to speak with my dad and they the nurse told me you can't speak with your dad he's in isolation and i said well surely you have to have uh, a cordless phone and they said no we don't have a cordless phone here i said you cannot lock my father up for 7 days in a room and completely deny him access to even speaking with his family so i spoke with the administrator which is the owner and also the director of care and they said that they would get a cordless phone. Um, But during that next week, they never told all of their staff. And so I would call in and the staff would tell me they didn't have a cordless phone. And I would say, you do have a cordless phone. So that week I was only able to speak to him about three times while he was completely isolated in his bedroom. Um, And also on, on the Saturday, I was telling him you're going to be, you have one more day, you're going to get out of isolation, you have one more day. And on the Sunday, I called him. And the nurse said to me, I'll bring the phone to him. And I said to her, what do you mean you'll bring the phone to him? He's supposed to be out of isolation. And the nurse said, well, didn't you hear the entire home's in lockdown? My dad ended up spending a month straight locked in his bedroom all by himself. so he the the effects of that mentally he he wasn't there anymore
0: <laughs> right he he wasn't able to come, recover from the isolation
10: no he um like i said he he lost his ability to communicate um in mid february social absences were permitted again so i could at least get him out of the home and take him home um during the entire time when there, when it was permitted, I would take him home every Saturday and have lunch with him and spend the afternoon with him. And, um, so once that was permitted again, in February of, uh, 2022, um, I would bring him home. He could no longer feed himself. So I'd, I'd make food. I would have to feed him. He couldn't communicate. He, he just completely gave up. he, I couldn't um, walk him anymore. He had completely lost all of his muscle mass because um, the home would tell me that for them to have somebody walk him, they needed due to health and safety reasons, they needed two people, but they were short staffed all the time. So they didn't have two people to take the time to walk him. So um, during the time I wasn't coming in, he completely lost his ability to walk, to communicate, to feed himself, everything.
0: So he's a completely different man. No. Yeah, yeah. You you weren't my understanding is so you're able to take him out for short term absences, but sp- yeah. but from December tenth, um, twenty twenty one, you were not allowed in. Um, but then no. you you were allowed in after he died.
10: Yes. So he suddenly passed away on September seventeenth, twenty twenty two. So I had not been sorry. I had not been allowed in the home from December 10th until September 17th. And it was very difficult. How do you fulfill your power of attorney duties when you cannot see what's going on inside the home? The day after he passed away, I called the home and I said, I need to come collect his belongings. And so the home said, yes, you can come in to, to get his things. So my mom... My friend and myself, we went there on September 18th, and the home let all of us in. None of us were screened. None of us were tested. They didn't even, there was no documentation whatsoever. They just let the three of us go in, take his things, and go.
0: So this this home that was so concerned about you showing up, even if you were tested and screened, had no concern yeah. with the three of you going in and wandering around the facility.
10: Yeah. And, and on that note as well, I'll also say um, during that time from February 22, until the day that he passed, so I was not allowed inside the home. There came a point when I couldn't get my father into my car anymore. Um, my friend would try and help me, but we were both getting hurt. My dad was getting hurt. So I could no longer get my dad home. There was no accessible uh, transportation in my town due to the pandemic. So I couldn't get my dad home with accessible transportation. So I was, however, permitted outdoor visits with him. So I would go and I would have an outdoor visit with him. Not once did they test me. I was never screened. My father wasn't screened. Um, after our outdoor visit yet we would be in the same proximity had I been in the home or had I taken him home on a social absence where he was um, being required to have all the testing
0: so I'm gonna ask you um, having experienced all of this if we were ever to face a situation like this again how do you think we should have done things differently
10: Um. <laughs> There are so many reports that are written by many levels of government. Um, There's the National Seniors Council, the Chief Science Advisor. There's also the Patient Ombudsman who has released all these reports as early as 2020. And in these reports, they stated the importance of continued access to um, caregivers, to the effects of the lockdown. The government has not listened to any of um, the scientific evidence that came from these reports that talk about the detrimental effects on our seniors. there's um, the long-term care act. and I'm, I'm just going to just I
0: do have to stop you just because we're about nine minutes over, and, and like yourself, we've had another witness that's been waiting for a couple of hours. but is it fair to say that, that you're of the strong opinion that there's just no way that caregivers should be separated from loved ones?
10: there's not and um it's a time at a time when they're in a long-term care home is when they need their family the most my dad was already suffering from a disease that took away that was taken away his body that was taken away his mind and then the government took away his family and his support and he had to go through that alone Um, i would like to say that the government needs to treat our seniors with respect and without discrimination because they deserve to enjoy equal opportunity and be able to live fully in the life of the province, in the life of Canada, the same way as every other Canadian has been forwarded.
0: And Leanne, I'll just ask the commissioners if they have any questions for you. And, and they do not. So, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I thank you so much for sharing this story. I don't know if you can hear, but the, the audience is clapping. And it, it's thank just you. so very important to hear from people like you. And, and thank you so much for sharing
8: this thank with you. us. Thank
0: you. So we would have then just one more online witness Jamie Paquin. Jamie, if you can uh, hear me and turn on your okay. camera, yep. so we, okay. can't, we can't see you yet. Mm. How's that? There we go, and my understanding is you are in Japan today.
11: That's right, Tokyo, frankly.
0: So, I'm going to ask you to start by uh, stating your full name and then spelling your first and last name for the record.
11: Okay. James Robert Paquin. Jamie
0: And Jamie, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Now, <clears throat> you were in Japan when COVID hit. That's right. And you're there because you run a, an all-Canadian wine business in Japan. Yep. Now, can you tell us how the Canadian COVID measures impacted your business?
11: Uh, For our business, we had a lot of logistics problems. So that's the first major hurdle. So shipping uh, containers were extremely expensive. Um, Then the inflationary measures that were brought in, uh, also the disruption of supply chains increased the price of the goods significantly. There were bottle shortages. Many wineries um, upped their prices significantly, and uh, at the same time, the the yen to the Canadian dollar dropped dramatically. So we probably ended up in one swoop in a large container order, losing about fifty thousand uh, dollars due to those factors.
0: And. How did it affect you personally, the Canadian COVID measures?
11: The the uh, uh, Canadian Charter violating restrictions on travel uh, made it practically impossible to, to go back to Canada, so I haven't seen friends or family since uh, 2019. And uh, as you know, none of this was based on science or... Uh, previous um, measures to deal with a, a, a virus so facing fines of up to a million dollars or three years in prisons for violating an absurd two-week quarantine while people with vaccines who are positive for covid could stroll into the country um made it really treacherous to to think to go home and even the financial cost of spending weeks doing that before you could even start a visit made it impractical so uh, these writers have robbed me of, you know, three years of friends and family. And uh, they've also caused huge rifts in family relationships because of the propaganda on the Canadian side that uh, has really damaged a lot of people.
0: Can you share and uh, some details about that?
11: Uh, yeah, very early on, you know, I have an academic background and I also saw that what they were saying didn't make very much sense. So I started following a lot of the academics who were um, producing the data like the infection fatality rate being lower than influenza. Uh, I knew that the games that were playing with um, uh, classifying COVID deaths based on PCR tests. And uh, I looked at the all-cause mortality rates that weren't increasing in most places. Japan had the lowest death rate in 11 years in 2020, actually. Um, and then the japan side we weren't subjected to things like bubbles uh mandates travel restrictions, and all of that so we were living they they did implement some sort of disruptions to the restaurant trade uh trying to get restaurants not to serve alcohol in the evenings but these were largely uh, violated you know I could go to restaurants packed with people um they closed the gyms for about six weeks but after that we were all Able to go back
0: So can I just so I probe you a little more just yep. to make sure I understand the differences with Japan. So are you saying they didn't do a general lockdown in Japan?
3: Yep
11: so they at six weeks in March, they they did things like put tape on you know uh, play devices at, at parks, but you could still use the parks. People were just largely ignoring that. They got people who work from home quite a bit but and uh but you know stores and everything were still open um like i said the gym was closed for about six weeks and then reopened um, and we my wife and i just traveled domestically we'd go down to okinawa the southern islands multiple times um, various smaller jurisdictions would would get worked up and they'd try to get people not to visit but these things were all largely voluntary and uh, so we we were living in a, a very different sort of world. There's people weren't being yanked out of other people's homes for gatherings and these sorts of insane things. And um, all the while, like anyone that wanted to, could just look at the data and look at these shady practices they they did with the PCR testing. It was it was largely a facade. And uh, but I was communicating all these and all the data to friends and family in canada but when you're on a 24 7 psychological uh, operation with the media doing the government's bidding they were basically impervious to facts just like we've seen with the the argue the arguments about mass formation psychosis and this sort of thing that uh i could show them the data but it just bounced straight off and eventually you know you have people just they're just the cognitive dissonance that they face when you present them with this they just want to shut down and they refuse to discuss it so it's a lot of family members i know i'm I'm going to have trouble with when i go back
0: so basically there's some family and friend family relationships that right now are broken
11: uh yeah either in in that zone of where i know if i bring up the topic of covid we're going to have issues and they're going to want to retreat from it and um you know and you can tell there's there's a silence on that side because they sus- they suspected if they do talk with me that it's going to be
0: brought up right so <clears throat> there were no mandates in Japan
11: no not nothing that would be remotely close to what was going on in Canada and if you look at the uh what's the world uh, data site interestingly there's continual gradual increases in covid deaths um in the last two years not in 2020 uh with after each booster round you see these these continual increases in the in the daily death rates but uh, in 2020 uh, there was virtually no like i said the lowest death rate in uh 11 years in, the, in a very elderly society and uh and that was without having this sort of severe measures that uh, were imposed on Canadians. We weren't hiding in our basements for a year and a half out of any sort of imposition by the government. Right. A lot of masking, a lot of masking, which is still an obsession in Japan because of the conformism here. Even after the government told people a year ago to take them off outside and then March 11th, they said they're completely voluntary. Um, I haven't worn one for ages, but my gym used to force us until March 1st and uh, but i would put up a fuss there and demand that they show me some data um but that's that's all about conformism in japan people will sit in restaurants for hours uh in the most tight confines you can't even find restaurants as is you know as densely packed in canada as they are commonly here and people will be there with no masks for hours and then they'll slap one on when they go outside it's just uh it's just a social theater
0: okay I have no further questions for you, but I'll ask if the commissioners have any questions for you. Okay, thanks. And they do not. So Jamie, we'll let you go on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry. Thank you so much for sharing with us today.
11: Yep, yeah, thanks very much.
0: So, commissioners, that uh, is our last witness for the day so we will adjourn until tomorrow at 9am
1: Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in As always, you can head over to
5: nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry,
1: thank you. The world is watching.